either paint it or draw it or write it down, right? And then pass it on to somebody. They read what you're saying, and then they are re-experienced, and that's the only connection you have with that man. So you can't rewrite, because to rewrite is to deceive and lie, and you betray your own thoughts. To rethink the flow and the rhythm and the tumbling out of the words is a betrayal. It's a sin, Martin. I don't accept your... Uh... Catholic interpretation of my compulsive uh, necessity to rewrite every single word at least a hundred times. Guilt is the key, not sin. Guilt re-not writing the best that I can. Guilt re-not uh, considering everything from every possible angle. Balancing everything. Well, how about guilt re-censoring your best thoughts, your most honest, primitive, real thoughts? Because that's what your laborious rewriting amounts to, Martin. Is rewriting really censorship, Bill? Because I'm completely fucked if it is. Exterminate all rational thought. That is the conclusion I have come to. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Intermediate Interzone Asylum podcast with the creator and sole recurring host, uh, Jake. I'm joined by a new guest uh, this week. Uh, name is Yelena. Yelena, do you want to introduce yourself? Hi, everybody. It's me. I'm... I'm here. <laughs> yeah, do you want to give any background on yourself? Like I, oh. I, I should say I, uh, I invited you on here because we're talking about two pieces of queer cinema, and I know that you yourself have a, in, a special interest in this. So I wouldn't say I'm an expert, and especially in new queer cinema, I don't think I've seen nearly enough films, uh, as or as many as I would have liked to. But I definitely... I'm really interested in queer representation in film, and it's kind of, I'm kind of really into that. And uh, yeah, it's kind of what I've been focusing on the past few years. So, about now, we'll start with the first chronological one, which is Gus Van Sant's uh, My Own Private Idaho from 1991, starring the late River Phoenix and Keanu Reeves. Before we talk about it proper, do you have any history with Gus Van Sant? I mean, I've seen, I've seen Good Will Hunting. I actually just rewatched it <laughs> because I was like, after watching this, I want to look at his other work. And I think that's one of his biggest films. Did he also make Milk, the movie about Harvey Milk? I think so. Let me check. He did. I have, yeah. He did, yeah. Um, I've seen some of that, but not fully, and it's been a while. So I've only really seen those two films. So I would guess, I would guess I'm kind of familiar. <laughs> Yeah, I'm a little more familiar. I've seen, besides my own private Idaho, I've seen Drugstore Cowboy, which is the film he made before this, Goodwill Hunting, his remake of Psycho, uh, Jerry, and Elephant. And I think I've seen parts of Milk, but not the full thing. It's a, not an uncontroversial opinion to say he's hit or miss. He's uh, somebody who does likes to do these experimental type films, but he also likes to do ma- some mainstream work. And then sometimes he falls really flat on his face, such as his Psycho remake, where by and large it was shot for shot, mostly from the original film, just with worse actors. And but I'm not gonna like defend him for making that, but I know like. Certainly, he does like his experimental qualities. I think he was trying to show, like, hey, maybe uh, even if you try to do a remake shot for shot, because it's in a different time period and a different actors, it won't be received the same. Yeah, you're right. It's but unfortunately, uh, your film on its own just is terrible. (laughs) It's it's a good good experiment, a good social commentary, maybe. But 
yeah i've ha obviously haven't seen it but that's what i've heard that like some of his films just like fully flop let's say like drugstore cowboy is a good movie i haven't seen goodwill hunting in years but i remember it being like a good solid straightforward enough hollywood film jerry and elephant are his two attempts to make like these uh fictional real life type stories in the mold of like slow cinema one is based on the elephant is based on like columbine loosely oh yeah yeah I, I, that. I have mixed feelings on that one but i would say i'd lean towards the positive and jerry i i don't think i was able to make it through and i have a pretty high tolerance for slow cinema but that movie just pushed it way too way <laughs> too far I, I could not deal with it and i knew how it ended so i just didn't even i was so uninvested i didn't even bother <laughs> oh no <laughs> that's never it's never a good sign when someone can't even finish your movie <laughs> Yeah, so he's not someone, he's not a favorite, and he's not someone I dislike either. He's someone who, yeah, is just in the middle, but, you know, he has his, he has interesting qualities and interesting films, and My Own Private Idaho, I would, I would say, is probably my favorite out of his films that, I, that I've seen, and it's a movie I like quite a bit, so. Yeah, it's definitely interesting knowing only Goodwill Hunting and My Own Private Idaho, because they're quite different. And um, so I think that's a really interesting viewpoint for me to have on his work. Before we go through the films, uh, what did you, uh, what was your general impression of My Own Private Idaho, just in like a broad sense? I think it spoke really well to the experience that someone like Mike had um, in that kind of situation, in that kind of time. Um, I know that there's like, parts that are supposed to be influenced by Shakespeare, like Henry the Fourth and Henry the Fifth. That, I don't know if that was something I would have needed, but I also don't know because I don't know the film without it. But that was something that threw me off more, I think, than it helped me with the film. I don't know if that makes sense. You're not the only one who said that because like the movie is kind of a odd cluster of different styles and presentations because there are parts of it that feel very naturalistic and other parts that are very dreamlike mostly having to do with mike uh was river phoenix and and then there are parts where the characters just speak in modern shakespearean language secretly out of nowhere and you're not the only one who said that it throws you off it throws a lot of pe people off it didn't necessarily throw me off because i get what he's doing and i think in context some of it makes a little sense but i i agree the immediate reaction a lot of people have is just that it's off-putting to just have that thrown at you especially because it's not consistent with the whole film yeah i think the influences of it weren't necessarily what bothered me but like you said the modern shakespearean talk it was just such a weird throwback i guess i don't know if it's throwback because i think the movie was made after my own private idol but the Romeo and Juliet re remake with Leonardo DiCaprio. Oh, I haven't seen that, but I, I know that Good that's for like you. a. Oh, okay. <laughs> like it's it's, I wouldn't say it's a bad film. Like it's definitely fun in its own way, but just it's so odd. As someone who quite enjoys like theater and like Shakespeare, it's so weird to see it put in the modern context without modernizing the language. It just it's a really weird juxtaposition, and I'm sure that's what the filmmakers who make these kind of films are going for, but it just, something in my brain doesn't always vibe with that to use modern language. 
Yeah, I kind of wonder, did that movie, like, keep the language perfectly from Shakespeare's original? I don't know about perfectly, but yeah, it's pretty, pretty much. Because, like, there's a lot of the sayings, I think, from the Henry plays that do make it into My Own Private Idaho, but it is mixed with referring to modern slang and modern objects more. So it's not like a total translation. It's putting it in its own modern language while still keeping that, you know, that iambic meter verse that Shakespeare wrote in. Anyway, did you, uh, have you read or seen a performance of the Henry plays at all? Because I will admit, I'm familiar with a a cup with a number of Shakespeare's works, but uh, not these ones, though I know like the general story from just seeing it like recreated in other mediums. I haven't seen it as a play. When I was a, you know, a tween, I was very obsessed with Shakespeare for a while. And I had a lot of like collective works of Shakespeare, and I'm sure that I've read it as part of it. But I was like 12, so it's A, a long time ago, and B, I don't know how much I understood at that time. I just read Romeo and Juliet like 14 times, and I was like, oh my god. That's fair. That is a play that very much speaks to that kind of <laughs> mind, exactly. that mindset. From what I heard people say, it doesn't really hold up to an adult <laughs> perspective a whole lot. Oh, but... no. Yeah, and there's another uh, filter of influence here as well because Orson, one of Orson Welles' last completed films when he was alive was Chimes at Midnight, which is like Orson Welles' version of the the Henry plays. And in that version, Orson Welles plays the Falstaff character who is Bob Pigeon in My Own Private Idaho. That's his counterpoint. And I think like Van Sant in My Own Private Idaho directly quotes Chimes at Midnight in various oh, nice. in various scenes so it's kind of it's like shakespeare filtered through orson wells which is a interesting conundrum but unfortunately i haven't seen chimes at midnight in full either so it's hard to compare it right which so we kind of have to look at how these things function in the movie itself i guess with like that little cute housekeeping about the film and it's shakespearean <laughs> content out of the way anyway yeah, start off, it, it opens with Mike Waters, who's uh, played by the late River Phoenix, on the open Idaho road, which he ends up on twice later in the film. He's there in the middle of the movie, and he's there at the very end. So kind of the road sort of bookmarks the, the three acts of the film. Just before we talk about what he does, what did you think of uh, River Phoenix's performance? I thought it was really good. I, f- I was a really good performance, even though I would say I don't know if this is the right word, but I felt the performances were very subdued from him. Like it was, yeah, I can't think of a better word, but I think it's like the way he played with the narcolepsy and just like how that affects his life and like not really having a home and like the being on the streets and how that still manifested in such a non-erratic way. I don't know if that's the right way to put it. I think subdued is a good way to say it. It's not a very flashy performance. Like he's, he really feels like he's kind of embodying this this sort of character. That's a very kind of unusual character. Even though you could say there's aspects of archetypes to him, like the drifter, or you know, even the uh, the old cliche, uh, the hooker with a heart of gold, <laughs> kind of thing, right? But uh, he he's able to convey a lot just in his in his eyes and his expressions, even when he's kind of he's supposed to have these blank reactions to things, which he does throughout the movie. You see that. His eyes convey a kind of depth and sadness even in in those scenes. And when he's forced to kind of really show the emotion, he does it very well and in a way that's not 
scenery chewing and he also doesn't have a lot of he doesn't have to do the shakespeare stuff a whole lot either which maybe that maybe that's why it's so subdued is that he's yeah not... i think that helps <laughs> but yeah i think he's really good this is probably i mean it's weird because he's like even younger than us when he did this movie so it's kind of hard to think where he would have gone up after this in a way because we've seen what his brother you know joaquin has done right yeah. who knows if river phoenix could have been he could have easily been one of the best actors of his time as shown in stuff like this, but never got to bloom. In a way, like it kind of, even the ending of the film and the way Mike goes, it kind of adds a sort of eeriness knowing what happened to River Phoenix yeah. in real life. Like literally just two years after this movie. Yeah, that's crazy. I was looking it up, like I was looking up like when, what year was it that River Phoenix passed away? And I was like, oh man, that's definitely adds something to it watching it now rather than at the time. Yeah, so we see him on the on the road talking about how he ends up on this road over and over again. How even before before this, he's been there. You know, he says like he's been stuck there one fucking time time before, but he can't exactly pinpoint it. So you kind of feel like even though we see him on this journey in this that he goes on in this movie, we kind of feel like he's already gone on these other kinds of journeys, and it always just brings him back to the same exact road but it's weird because the road feels the scene feels like more dreamlike and abstract in a way but this road is real in the movie because him and scott uh, keanu reeves end up on this I road think, later yeah i think the road and like this opening scene already really sets up the kind of restlessness that he's feeling and how he's clearly to me very desperately looking for somewhere to belong and somewhere to be home and I mean, that's what I would guess his search for his mom is so motivated by. And like, I think that sets it up so well at first that he's already like, oh, another road. I've been here before. <laughs> yeah. Even the way he yells at the little bunny on the landscape, like, hey, you little shit, we're stuck out here together. And the bunny just hops away. Even the animal yeah. doesn't want to be with him. <laughs> oh my God. So sad. Yeah. yeah. I thought that was an interesting choice too, that what at first I thought was a voiceover is actually him speaking out loud to himself, almost like he's narrating to himself. And I thought that was really interesting because I don't know if I'm misremembering this, but I feel like he was talking most to himself and like most comfortably. And then we don't see him really speak that much at a time throughout the rest of the film. Not that he's not in conversation, but it just seems like he had the most to say just in the privacy of his own company, I guess. Yeah, that is kind of an interesting point because like his most sort of, you could say like poetic lines come at the beginning and end where he's talking to himself on the road. Whereas in the rest of the movie, he does speak in the more broken kind of way of talk, monosyllabic way of talking. So yeah, that's an interesting uh, choice you, you picked up on because he's somebody who's uh, kind of has to live inside his own consciousness a lot of the time because he's unconscious throughout most of his life because of this narcolepsy that he has and the film opens before we even see him we, it opens with a dictionary definition of narcolepsy which brings me back uh, to rob zombie's second halloween movie which opened <laughs> with a, a a fake quote that rob zombie pulled out of his ass to explain the symbolism of the white horse in that <laughs> film but uh in this, at least, it's like it's not explaining a piece of symbolism. It is explaining this actual real condition that this character has. That's also kind of used as a transitionary device in the film to kind of jump around the way it does. 
Definitely. I think that was also really clever and how it like helped to transition because I thought it was another way to make the time pass. And I think what also was employed a lot, I don't know if it's necessarily in terms of time passing, but like with his dreams and how the time passes with him having these daydreams, like all the shots of the clouds passing, which is like a super classical trope for time passing. Vincent likes to have shots like those sped up shots of the clouds throughout a lot of his movies. But I think here it's integrated very well into Mike's character because he time is literally passing him by and he can't feel it often. So like the he'll go through a time, but he'll still be feeling these kind of emotions because he hasn't he's spent so much time asleep and being carried around so he's not at all in control of his life which leads into when he and we go into his perspective and we kind of see him looking down the road and he says hey it looks like a looks like a fucked up face that's staring at me it's almost like he's embodying uh the road as like a person that constantly has him under his control in a sense i don't know if you had felt that same way about that yeah, I think that kind of like he's not under his own control, I think, is also with like his illness, like he really can't control when it happens. So I think it's kind of something he grapples with in multiple ways. When he passes out this first time on the road, uh, we get some of those dream imagery, like you said, of the clouds, but we also see him uh, you know, being cradled by his mother as well as a, a house in the middle of, of the field. And I think that's kind of obvious. Like, even though it's a broken home, it's still something he wants. Like, he doesn't even have something that is yeah. broken, right? I think it's very much like just any kind of home. And I think, I mean, I don't know if this is jumping too far ahead, but I think it's also very obvious that that's what he's looking for in his relationship to Scott. That was his name, right? Yeah. Yeah, no, that's that's a good point. Like, I think that's very, he is somebody who just wants to be loved by somebody for a long period of time. But like his lifestyle, he's always stuck in, he's just stuck in limbo in his lifestyle and he can't really break out into these long-term things ever with anybody. It's like the love for money. Like he gets paid, (laughs) spends a night with someone, but it's obviously not filling what he's actually looking for. Yeah, that segues into the other imagery in that dream. It kind of coalesces with him being filleted by this uh, this other John. But while he's doing that, he has these visions of, you know, salmon kind of jumping in the in the river and then the calm river on the, the shorelines. I kind of noticed that this time. The, his Even his jacket uh, that he wears throughout the movie is like has the color of salmon. Kind of, I think like salmon or fish that off. I believe they often get swept up in the same type of stream, so they always return back to where they came from, and that that sort of symbolizes Mike and his how his his constant, I guess you could say absurdist situation. He's always trying to find something, but he always ends up in the same place alone. Yeah, I think that's a really good observation. It always like he always drifts back to the streets, waiting for the next car to pick him up, kind of thing. Once he's done being filleted by that uh, by that John, he uh, you get the image of the house uh, crashing onto the road, which oh yeah, I think it's obviously one that's like a abstract depiction of an orgasm, <laughs> a little ton in cheek and humorous how it's handled, but it's also kind of like because that house that he saw, it's like a symbol of a home he wants, but it's like reality snapping that away from him, the reality of his business and his life, it, it just comes crashing down once he's woken up right yeah that's also what i thought i was like oh this there we go back to what's real and the the dreams just like 
crushed. Yeah, yeah. Lots to unpack in that in that little opening. Uh, Definitely, I, I wrote that down. I was like the opening. <laughs> yeah, no, it's a it's a really good way to open the movie. It sets its style and what this character's journey will be, even if you're not so consciously aware of it. One thing I noticed this time rewatching, I've seen this film a few times before, but I noticed this time when uh, in the dream when his mother is cradling him sleeping, he said she says like I know you're I know you're sorry, Mike, but it's okay. Like uh, I find like a lot of the past Mike has to his mother is left very ambiguous throughout the movie, and like this maybe is jumping ahead a little bit because we find out much more about that later. But I kind of wonder like does, is Mike estranged from his how long has it been since Mike has seen his mother? Was he just like a little kid the last time he saw her? In those little home movie style dreams he has, he's just like a little kid, right? We don't ever see him as he is interacting with her. Yeah, I was thinking about that too, especially like the home movies, because it was like really a visual contrast to what we obviously were seeing the whole time before. And I think it's interesting too, because I asked myself the same question. Was he a this young when he last saw, saw her but it's hard to imagine that you would remember this much being that young so I also was just wondering like how much of what he's remembering about his mom is just things he's made up in his head to fill in the blanks yeah I think the uh, the use of like how it's done in a home movie style fits that it's almost like he's a he's like a filmmaker in his own mind creating these these memories right <laughs> that yeah. he event that he eventually abandons at the film's end, not to get ahead, but that's very much what he does. <laughs> yeah. One thing that's interesting in the after the fellation scene is that the rest of the sex scenes in the film are done in, and we'll talk about that more in detail. They're done in that uh, Renaissance like posed quality. Like you don't see any motion at all. They're like framed like uh, tableaus, but that's not done in this opening scene. Which uh, do you have any? thoughts as to why that is or maybe do you think it's just a little bit of inconsistency I mean I think it's interesting because like we first see him just like how his reaction is to it you know so I think I don't know if it's just a way to establish who he is and how he feels as we go in and then later as we already get to know the characters and the constellations more staged but I thought it was I don't know, like a good trope to focus on or to represent the act through the experience of one person rather than through the external view. I thought it was an interesting choice. And I think something that I see in queer films, but I don't know if that's just me reading into them when I watch them or, yeah. I guess we can maybe talk about the idea of how I mentioned how this film is so stylistically kind of all over the place, but in a way that's interesting and maybe maybe could be a little off-putting to some people, but I remember I had a course where we were talking a little bit about queer theory readings, and he said that queer isn't necessarily just LGBT. It's something that is actively strange in its production and in its presentation that's challenging these kind of norms, right? And I would say that this film definitely deals with the LGBT characters. The presentation of it definitely signifies it as like a piece of queer alternative cinema in that sense. Yeah, I think definitely, especially with a movement like New Queer Cinema that was very much not about making money, but about portraying these stories in a way that queer people wanted to. And like, it's for the representation of them rather than like the aim to make money. And I think I definitely also wrote down that 
queer cinema is not just queer and like its subject matter of queer characters, but also in the way it's presented. And it's supposed to be an opposition to, you know, whatever, hetero standards in film, I guess. I don't know. That's a good way to put it. Uh, yeah, I guess after they're done, Mike kind of knocks on that guy's door when he's in the bathroom. And he says like, you know, come on, you know, I don't get along with my, my dad very well. But you kind of see he's sincerely desperate for money, but he's also lying <laughs> to this guy <laughs> at the same time because, you know, he knows what is he doesn't really have a dad. Right. So, yeah, I thought it was also hilarious that those guys just end up sitting on the toilet while <laughs> Mike is begging him for money. He, River Phoenix does that a few times in the movie where he kind of curls up in a fetal kind of position. He's doing that a little bit, holding himself, his arms yeah. close to himself. I think it would make sense uh, after the interaction he's had, kind of seeking that comfort again. Yeah, it's after that we cut to just a little part when he's on the street, he's on the crosswalk, and he sees a woman uh, who kind of resembles the his dream of his mother there, and he kind of almost tries to wonder, like, is that is that really her? But it's not. She just bears a passing resemblance to her. I think it kind of, like you said, how Mike is a character who just wants a home of some way. I think it kind it that sort of indicates it well that he's just looking everywhere he could for a figure in his life to kind of hold and take care of him. Yeah, I thought it was interesting too because I was convinced she would say something because I felt like everyone was feel like the people behind him were staring at him, staring at this woman. And I feel like she was like looking at him and I was like, "Whoa, what's this going to be? And then it was just like a fleeting moment. And I was like, this illustrates so perfectly that he's like you said, he's always looking. And there's so many moments that give him, I don't know if like a glimpse of hope is the right phrase, but he just has this like flicker of, oh my God, did I just see my mom? And then it's so funny too, because speaking again about what we said, did he just fill in the blanks of his memories because he looks at her for so long. And then only after we look at her face or like the shot centers her face for a while, it flickers to his dream or his memories, what his mom actually looks like. And I think that's so interesting because I think in a way it's like he doesn't really know. He doesn't know what his mom would look like now. He's not entirely sure if that could be her, if it is her. Yeah, because we never even see a photograph of her. I I don't think – actually, we do, It's but it's like a blurry black and white one we see later. So we don't even have a really objective look at his mom throughout the movie. Yeah, and he doesn't have one, I think. So it's only – like he doesn't own one that he could reference, I guess. Yeah, because I think then we just it's just a cut to uh, him uh, being at that little place where the pros, the hustlers hang out, like on this, that street corner, which he ends up at later in the movie. And I find that, just not to jump to when he shows up there, but like when we see him, you know, he's fidgeting around the corner when he comes into frame. But then in the second time we see this similar shot, he's the one, uh, you know, banging his head on the... <laughs> The metal and then a different guy comes into that same position so it's a little poetic kind of link to it because it almost shows that like mike is kind of ambivalent to this lifestyle but by the end because he's kind of lost scott and his mother mother he's now just kind of he knows he's in a rut and he's not even trying to get out of it yeah i think the scenes definitely echoed each other in a way what i was also just going to say before i forget because we were talking about how 
queer cinema is not just about, you know, queer stories or like LGBT stories, I guess. I think that's also signified through his illness. Like he's already an outsider because he has this weird illness that no one understands. Like when he is with Scott and this other kid and the other kid's like, should we just leave him? And I mean, they kind of do just sometimes leave him. So I think that already makes him an outsider. And I think that kind of further drives home that like feeling of queerness and otherness, I guess. At that that little station, he gets picked up by that sort of John character, that very effeminate kind of campy guy who you know, makes Mike his little Danish boy. I think that's what he what he calls him. It's a very bizarre... Wait, was little... it Dutch boy or Danish boy? Oh, it was Dutch know. boy. It was Dutch boy. Yeah, that's what it was. That was a very, that was a very strange kind of comical scene. Uh, I remember I, uh, on the, I own the film on uh, the Criterion Collection and on the second uh, disc, uh, a film scholar talks about the idea of the liminal state where you're not, you're straddling between you know, society's norms and being on the fringes and how it kind of allows people to do these kind of role playing. It's something that's interesting to apply. And I think it it does show like, yeah, because Mike is somebody who kind of, he is more immersed in this hustler world, but there is a part of him that wants to, that feels an emptiness from it. So he's not totally embedded in it, right? Yeah, it never seems like he's there by choice. I think it's when they're in the restaurant with all the other hustlers and they like tell stories or they are like having fun together he always seems kind of like he's dissociating like he always seems distant and not fully there and it yeah it's kind of like he doesn't want to be there but he just kind of is i think it's after this uh, he's picked up by that that rich woman who's uh played by grace zabriskie who's uh, a character actress and a lot of things she was in Jugs are cowboy, and most people know her as Sarah Palmer from Twin Peaks. She's also in oh, a yeah. lot. Of, she's in a lot of David Lynch's work as bits, uh, playing a different role here than she usually plays, even though it's just a bit. But yeah, she picks up Mike. She likes to have like multiple guys with her. It helps her get off. They don't exactly explain what her what her deal is. And yeah, we're introduced to Scott in this scene. And I think it's interesting the way we are introduced to Scott because he's in the home of this rich lady, but that's kind of is his natural home. He comes from a rich family, whereas we're introduced to Mike when he's on the road with no home. So almost a subtle foreshadowing of Scott's actual story. Yeah, I think it was super apt because he just looked like he fit in. I think he was like dressed up in like a little blazer or suit jacket or something. And it was just all very fitting to the vibe. And then Mike comes in and he's like wearing jeans and this big jacket. And it just seemed a bit odd. Even when the, the other guy uh, is just like, hey, Mike, did you get into that Sinead O'Connor's concert last night? He's like, uh, I've never been to a concert before. You just you just see how so out of place he feels even amongst yeah. his two friends. Yeah. What did you think of Keanu Reeves's performance Hmm. so i was just saying this earlier that after watching because the films are like joseph gordon levitt young and then kind of reeves young and i feel like not to compare because they're different people but i was way more impressed by joseph gordon levitt than i was with kind of reeves and i think he's a good actor and i think he portrayed scott well but i wasn't like wow kind of reeves in this film so amazing like it wasn't like a shocker and maybe it's because we're used to consistent like you know 
good work from him. But I don't know. I think we have to put it in the context of the films he made then, right? Well, he's an actor that's kind of very limited, I would say. He doesn't have a... You know, I mean, he has a really low register voice. He doesn't emote very naturally, I yes. think. <laughs> and he, there are parts in this movie where I think maybe that's a problem. But, and I know some people may think, because he's the one who a lot of the Shakespearean stuff comes from him because Scott, his character is based on Prince Hal from the Henry plays. But it almost, because like those Shakespearean scenes are kind of like, it's them kind of playing and like, and trying to like bullshit each other in a way. So like the fact that he's not entirely convincing actually kind of works to the, to the movie's advantage, if that makes sense. I know that sounds really strange, but it actually plays to some of his limits in a really odd way. Yeah, no, I know what you mean. Like I felt the same. I was like, huh. This is, I'm not entirely convinced, like when he would deliver the Shakespearean lines, but I was like, but it's fine because it's not supposed to be like fully Shakespearean. I'm not supposed to all of a sudden be immersed in this Shakespearean world. Like it's still this movie, the same movie as before. So I get what you mean. Yeah. And he's kind of a facetious character too. That's kind of closed off. Like he's not totally uncompassionate, but he is closed off from these other people who kind of desire him and he probably has a bit of an internalized uh, homophobia in despite the fact that he is participating in this same stuff yeah. i think i mean it's he just kind of says he's just gay for pay right like yeah. he wouldn't do this for real whatever and then we see him later falling in love with a girl but i think to me it very much symbolized kind of the passerby and that for him it's an option to I don't know if I'm going too far ahead. Stop me at any no, point. It's no, it's fine. But I feel like Scott really, because like we see he comes from a rich household. He comes from privilege. We see that his family cares about him. Like his dad is trying to get his son to come back home. And Scott is very much the person who gets to choose to just go on the streets and like stand on the street corner for a few nights. You know, I don't even know if he does that. We, I don't think we ever see him do that. We just know he is part of the circle. And uh, I think it's such an interesting note about privilege and how for him, it's just like a fun youth rebel, whatever kind of phase. Whereas for Mike, this is he, this is all he has. It sort of juxtaposes like the real sort of rebels and fringe society people between those who can just fake it in a way. And at the end of the movie, it really does show that juxtaposition in a pretty obvious way but still effective do you know anything about the origins of this movie oh no i just read about that it only really got made because Keanu reeves was like this is cool let's make it and then and then he never wanted to do a gay <laughs> role again i think he said that but uh Ooh. <laughs> okay he, yeah, interesting just... context there <laughs> yeah uh but Van Sant originally wrote a script about street hustlers back in the 70s. but And then a book came out and he thought yeah. the book was far superior to what he wrote. And then he wrote another script that was similar and then another script that was uh, a retelling of the Shakespeare plays. And so he kind of cobbled all of those together into this into this movie, which is interesting because like, he's really inspired by uh, – William S. Burroughs, the the beat writer. I think he's inspired by the beat writers in general. And Burroughs, uh, if you've ever read Burroughs, that's where the name of my podcast 
comes from is uh, Interzone. Is Burroughs the one who wrote Naked Lunch? Yes. Yes, I've read it. I've read that. Very weird. Burroughs' technique is that cut-up technique where he will take bits of his writing, whether it's poems or prose, and he'll just mix them together to create this really odd, uh, sort of surreal effect in the in the audience. In fact, Burroughs has a can't as a bit part in uh, Drugstore Cowboy as an actor, uh, an ex-drug addict, which which he was in real life around that time. Yeah, I mean, this movie doesn't use the shock stuff that is associated with Burroughs, but even the idea of like when this becomes a road movie, it is kind of does remind you a bit of like Jack Kerouac and some of those other beat writers. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. When, uh, but yeah, back to that scene where we're introduced to Scott. Yeah. Mike, uh, here's like the sounds of the ocean when he puts up the, uh, clamshell, I think to his ear. I think the Grace Zabriskie, she kind of looks a little bit like she bears a little bit to resemblance to his mom in like his memories and then he's going to have to do this sexual thing with her. And maybe that I think that's probably what causes the his narcolepsy to take hold there. Because especially what we learn later about his mother uh, and the older brother, that, that probably uh, rings something up for yeah. Mike. Yeah, I think so too. I think it's also super well signified in the way that he buttons up his jacket yeah, after she I, came in. I noticed that too. Yeah. And um, he she's like no 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 you should unbutton it but I think it was so interesting because I don't know if they said it but I feel like he mostly was getting picked up by men so I think this was weird for him because he did say something like I never get picked up by ladies all the less by like nice rich ladies like you or whatever yeah it's exactly what he says it's actually interesting because I think Van Sant in the early drafts of the script, he wrote Mike to almost be like asexual in a sense. Like this was just his job. He didn't really get much out of it. But it was actually River Phoenix who uh, wrote the that campfire scene later that turned um, him and Scott's relationship into this unrequited love story. So you can actually thank River Phoenix for inducing more of the el- the queer aspects of the film that wasn't even there from the beginning going because a pretty fun uh, notable scene comes up after he's passed out we get that the porno mag the gay porn oh mag yeah scene, i wrote I kinda, that down i was like that one was awesome <laughs> yeah that, that was funny uh, i kind of wonder is that is that in mike's mind that it's happening or is it just the film itself kind of looking out at the uh the audience in that scene i don't think it was in Mike's mind. I think it was purely for the audience. Like, that's how I understood it. And I was like, what a fun little bit. Like, it just, I was like, whoa, what is happening? I guess it's supposed to establish that Scott is a model. And then I was like, wait, everyone is here. Everyone is on these covers. What is happening? And then it just like went on and it didn't acknowledge it. And I was like, that was great. I kind of wonder if it's part of Mike's mind because it's sandwiched in between him passing out and then waking up. (laughs) That's what I was wondering. But it's so much more about Scott in that scene than it is about Mike. So that's the sort of strange thing. Uh, Scott's like admits that yeah, he's gay for cash. He won't. He's not going to do it for money. He has the line when he looks up at Mike, who's in his sleeping position (laughs) on his own magazine. He's like, you know, if you start doing things for free, you start to grow wings. And you become a fairy, which is a, mm. a actually kind of an interesting line because that's a slang derogatory term for gay men. But it's almost like actually Mike 
loving somebody for free, which he wants to do for Scott, is something that would actually kind of figuratively make him grow wings and elevate him from this from this life, you know? Yeah. Maybe it's also kind of setting up what we'll see later with Mike and his affinity for Scott, I guess. Love, I guess. He does say he loves him, I think. Yeah. It's an unrequited kind of love, clearly. Yeah, and then I guess Mike wakes up. He's with Udo Kier as Hans, I think is his name. He's the guy we see a few times, the obvious German pervert who uh, lusts after them. But Yeah, I, I, I wrote that down in my notes. I was like, you got to love the bit of German weirdness. I feel like it's just such a classic. <laughs> yeah, you're you're from Germany yourself, so I love yes, that. Yes, I love that, rep- love that representation. <laughs> Oh, yeah. <laughs> One of the two options, I think this is probably better. <laughs> yeah. Just another point about the magazine is I think this movie kind of puts some of those those pop ad things in between kind of quotation marks in a way that's kind of indicting some American ideals, like these advertisements that are selling people these ideas. Because we see that in the beginning when we see the fast food mascots during Mike's little, uh, I don't know, hallucinations, but his dreams. So it kind of seems like these artificial signifiers of American success and the supposed equality that they claim, but like in the actual reality of Mike's story, they don't play out that way. Yeah, I think that's very typical of like new queer cinema to like speak back to like this idealized white cishead version of like reality that's like, this is might be the world you live in, but it's not the world everyone lives in. And- if that's common of like postmodern type cinema is placing these kind of iconographies in between these ironic quotation marks and showing them how artificial it all is. In a way, this is a quite a postmodern type movie, just in the way it pastiches and collages all these differing styles. But I don't think it's in a way that it's meant for just ironic coolness, the way. It is in, say, the post-Quentin Tarantino movies that came very shortly after My Own Private Idaho. It, it, spe- it is speaking still to a more inner truth about the characters and their lifestyles and even to maybe Van Sant's own relationship to this scene and how he feels about it. Yeah, I think it's very much the otherness is kind of positioned again. What's interesting is that Van Sant came from a lower middle class background and then he went to art school. Uh, he was interested in painting from an early age and eventually moved into making you know, avant-garde films before he moved into making his features. So it's kind of where his sympathies lie. I remember uh, someone said that, a scholar said that Scott is a little bit, might be a little bit of a stand-in for Van Sant himself because he's somebody who comes from a decent background and then he kind of merges with the marginalized figures and then Van Sant himself ended up becoming a guy who could make movies in Hollywood fairly freely on his own terms so it's a little bit of autobiographic there but he kind of know, knows the hypocrisies of his of Scott and he and I think it's clear that Mike is more the emotional heart of the movie who he kind of has more sympathy towards so yeah. it's kind of interesting to interesting his perspective how he kind of probably sees himself a little bit in both these characters yeah for sure it's definitely something to consider in terms of what you said like he went on to make hollywood films or not not all of his films of course but like yeah it's i think it's an interesting way to put it in relation to vincent yeah yeah we're back in the uh in that little coffee house or that little restaurant that the hustlers all 
I'll hang yeah, out in. Yeah. Mike asks him if like Scott ever makes money off him while he sleeps, which is a could be a disturbing implication, but the movie kind of doesn't really go into that. But we don't really see what happens to Mike when he's a, asleep. He always just wakes up in these other places, unsure what's happened to him. But I mean, Scott says he wouldn't, right? And um, yeah, I think that very much because even though the relationship between them is kind of an unrequited love. I do think that while they're together and spending time together, Scott does care about Mike and he like looks out for him. Like when they were at the lady's house, he was like, oh no, don't worry. I know what's going on. And he explained it to the other kid. And like, I think he very much looks out for him and he very much cares about him. And I mean, they say later that they've known each other for like four years. Right. So yeah, they've been friends for quite a long time. I think, like, that's the thing. Scott kind of works, like, yeah, he's he's guarded, but he does actually have compassion for Mike. But at the same time, he's never going to let these people really near his heart. Same thing with Bob Pigeon, who shows up pretty soon after this. Yeah, in this scene also, we get those, like, verite, cinema verite-type interviews with those two hustlers. One's the blonde one, and the other's the black one. Those were real street kids who uh, Van sent for this movie. And the blonde one, I think, is the actual inspiration for Mike. Like, he's like the real life equivalent to Mike. It's just interesting to put them in this movie. But yeah, they tell some like these stories of how, you know, the real life equivalent to Mike, you know, he was like raped with a, with a bottle, I believe. And then the other one was, you know, talking about how he had to, how he had to do a, a job with a really vicious customer which made which kind of caused him not to do jobs for a whole year so it's kind of interesting but the way they deliver it it's they're so just kind of matter of fact about it they don't seem to be wearing their scars on their sleeves kind of a thing so it kind of gives a context to why maybe mike himself is so kind of blank to this lifestyle yeah i think it was super interesting to include those because i think it's again kind of showing the reality of this world and the danger that's associated with this kind of thing i was just gonna say that because we see films films like pretty woman where she's a prostitute but her life is very very unlike what we see in a film like my own private idaho like what these kids go through and then what we see in that kind of film it's a very romanticized version and I think that's shown a lot in film where it's like, like you said, there's like the stripper with the heart of gold kind of thing, Yeah. you know? And I think that trope is a lot in where then that person is being saved from the depths of sex work and how bad it is. And like, but it doesn't really explain. I, f- I feel like that a lot of films kind of portray that trope. And I think the reality that My Own Private Idaho brings to it and that it's like, this is the reality but we're dealing with it, I think is very strong point to make about the situation. Yeah. And I think after that, there's a weird bit where they all wake up on rooftops when Bob oh, yeah. shows up. That's a, that's an odd choice, but I guess it feels like uh, gives it that artificial Shakespearean quality of them all looking down on their master. Yeah. You know. Yeah. That was an interesting choice. And I think, Especially because we later see them all congregate in this apparently huge building that I didn't quite get what it is. Like, when the police raids it and then Scott's just like, please leave me. I don't know if that's because his father, like, owns the property or it's because he has a standing with the police. Like, I was very confused about what this house was, if they were squatters. 
who's the old lady? She also seemed like she lived there, but she didn't seem too involved with the group. It was all very weird. And so that's made the roof scene even weirder because I was like, wait, at first they're all sleeping on the roof, but then they're all in this house. Why weren't they in the house in the first place? Maybe just for dramatic effect. <laughs> I, th- I honestly think that I honestly think that's it. <laughs> but I know what you mean, that house they live in, but like they have like, you know, the classic hobo uh you know fireplace from the barrel right that's like literally in the house right but it seems like that old the old woman almost lives in this place and lets them live here with them like she has sympathy for them but it feels like a it doesn't feel like a place that has real ownership yeah it's so it's so strange because like you said the hobo fire but then upstairs when again that scene where the police comes in they're in a fully furnished room with a bed there's a closet or bathroom whatever adjacent that bob is hiding in and it's like i'm confused is this like a squatter house or is it a normal house yeah and then the the shakespearean stuff really takes over in yeah the, in these scenes yeah switching out low lines for you know lines of coke and gay bars and stuff you know which obviously shakespeare wouldn't have written <laughs> at the time yeah it's interesting because like i think when i think of shakespeare you know, his focus is always on kings and rulers, right? And obviously there's like parts in his plays that are satirizing that, those rulers of his time. But also in his plays, whenever you see the sort of common people, like the average work, you know, on the street people, they're often very objects of ridicule. They're they're usually there for humor in a lot of ways, I guess, depending on which version of it you see or which one you read. But that's often how it's come across to to me in his plays. And it's interesting how this film very much is, it takes Shakespeare, but it's so sympathetic to the people who Shakespeare normally wouldn't focus on. Yeah, I think it's interesting too, because later there's a scene where someone asks Bob, aren't you the king of the streets or something? Yeah. And I was like, I see what you did there, Vincent. I see what you did there. <laughs> Bob and uh, Scott go outside, and again, they're speaking in that in that vernacular. Scott reveals how kind of calculated he is, and he says, "You know, when I turn twenty-one, I will be done with this life, and I and I will, you know, make an unexpected change. Right? I'll shock everybody. You see how you kind of see how facetious and calculated he is, and then." But he promises Bob, you know, he says like, hey, you'll have a job for me You'll be out of this line. And it's clear that Bob and Mike, who both kind of have this attra- huge longing for Scott, do. I mean, they, they obviously are attracted to him because he is, you know, handsome, charismatic and stuff. But he's also is somebody who could signify a kind of hope for them, even though it really turns out to be false. For yeah, both it's of like them. a socioeconomic step up. That's what he symbolizes. Yeah, it's after this they uh, recreate the uh, the scene where uh, I think Falstaff tries to rob uh, some people in the play, and the, you know in this version uh, they do that. Mike and Scott stage this robbery where they're going to rob these rock and roll promoters, I think. And yeah, that was so random. And then the little pink bathrobes or whatever. I was like, what is going on? Yeah, I think it is. It seems random, but it is like recreating a, a scene from the play so yeah without that, that i i that i caught on to but i was like this i guess fits into the story <laughs> <laughs> yeah and they they do it just to see what lies bob will come up with to, which is again is a part of the play they in the shakespeare play they rob these people and then falstaff makes up all these big lies about how you know there were seven of them and i fought 11 of them off which 
Bob <laughs> very much does. And it's kind of a fun scene. The Shakespeare stuff works there just because it's so kind of yeah, playful. He's telling these lies and Scott's leading him on and everything. It's all a matter of them playing these games with each other. So I don't yeah. mind the, how it works there. I think the aftermath of the kind of stealing incident when then they like egg on Bob to tell these lies. I think that's when the Shakespearean bit worked the most for me. And that's maybe also because at that point it fell into place because it was building on a previous Shakespearean scene. But yeah, I thought that was kind of funny. Um, and that it like worked for me at least. Then it's when it's finally worked. And I was like, okay, I guess. I still don't know why we had to see them dress up in pink bathrobes, but you know, <laughs> we got here, so that's good. It, it's fun. I mean, there's clearly a playful energy to to this stuff that Vance Sant is taking in. I think sure. some, it's almost kind of the movie in a whole. It has all these weird things that don't really go together but when they are together in the movie it makes something pretty interesting to watch and not in a way that's frustrating (laughs) i think that kind of again embodies what mike is going through he's like going through all these things but nothing really makes sense and he's just trying to find one thing where he feels at home and safe and loved and he's going through this jumble of things and yeah, the police then raid the the building where scott is pretending to have (laughs) sex with mike even though they're they're not and he kind of flippantly like you know fuck you his dad's assistant i think like it almost feels like he's purposely playing up the effeminate quality the way he just shoes him away with the then yeah i guess then we see scott talking with his dad and scott's deliberately dressed in very queer attire with clearly trying to provoke him there but yeah, because his dad clearly believes in, you know, these middle class kind of values of hard work and patriarchy and such versus the total chaos and just simple camaraderie of the street characters. That's yeah, not- I think it's super interesting, the scene specifically, because I think in Mike's world, Scott very much represents this other world where he can go back to, whereas with his father, Scott kind of represents the street more. And I think because Scott's father likely is also like, oh, you're such an effeminate boy, blah, blah, blah. And I think that's also why Scott is playing it up, because I think even though in the end he he says that he, you know, is only gay for pay and how true that is, obviously, it's up to interpretation. I think it's just kind of the fuck you to his dad by also like embracing these stereotypes about being effeminate or gay or whatever. I think that's definitely an interesting conversation and juxtaposition with who he is in Mike's world versus who he is in his dad's world. I think it's almost like duality kind of helps define Scott, I think, a lot throughout the film. It's almost because like to Mike, he is kind of like a love object in a way, right? So it's he in his mind, Scott is this kind of great person who he wants to love, but he can never truly reach him. That contradiction sort of plays into that. I think that's interesting, too, because Scott's dad also is desperately trying to show his love to his son. But his son's like, "Mm, I'll do it on my own terms. And I think that's very much like what Scott also brings to Mike. He's like, I love you, but not in a gay way, like only like a friend kind of thing, you know, like however I want it is how I'm going to do it. I think it's pretty much after that we... Yeah, they're just talking in the tea house. Mike's just almost looks like he's passed out, but he's just like, you know, kind of want to go see my brother. And they're like, oh, you had a brother? Yeah, I told you. 
and then <laughs> then they just take off like like that it's pretty abrupt and then it becomes a very becomes a road movie from here on i just think it it's so interesting how it sets up this world in portland and just as we are diving in and kind of getting to know the dynamics and we're like, okay, so this is where everyone stands. And then all of a sudden it's like, but let's leave that behind. And now we're on the road. And I think, again, it's like the restlessness that Mike is feeling. But I think it was just like, as a viewer, I was like, oh, wait a minute. Okay, now we're on a bike, on a shitty ass stolen bike on the middle of a road. And I think that's when, like you said, the road kind of signifies the different parts of the movie because they're on the road again. And I think it's one of the first scenes when they like start being on the road when the cop shows up while their bike is broken down. Yeah. And I think it's, again, so interesting, which I just realized now, like the difference of Scott's reactions to police. He's just like, I'll just tell them to leave me alone, you know, whereas Mike is like, police, I'm a run. And he yeah. just like bolts and uh, runs off. And I think that was, it's really interesting um, that it kind of continues that theme of, I don't know how else to call it, except for like Scott showing his privilege and how he's used to dealing with the police in a way where he gets away. Yeah, I thought the same thing too, especially like Mike just totally flips, you know, he just police and he's like scattering as he's running. He's not even running in a straight, <laughs> straight line. And you know, he's just like, uh, the cop's like, what's wrong with your friend? He's like, I don't know. I guess he just doesn't like cops. <laughs> like, he's just so confident in his ability to not have to put up with this guy's. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting, like, as a road movie, this c- does come at a time in the 90s during these sort of, some of these postmodern films. You look at, uh, like, two of uh, films that Tarantino wrote, you know, True Romance and uh, Natural Born Killers. I mean, Natural Born Killers was that massively rewritten and then you also had stuff like Thelma and Louise which came out the same year uh David Lynch's Wild at Heart was also like the year before this all these kind of revisionist road films and even in the 80s with, with film like Jim Jarmusch's early films and even like some of the German director uh Wim Wim ben- Wenders I don't know if I'm pronouncing that name wrong sounds fine <laughs> okay yeah, all these things that took the you know the old formulas of road movies were you know atypical pairs coming together and then going on this self discovery and then maybe being reintegrated into society. With my own private Idaho uh, as a revisionist road movie, this very much uh, all of them kind of have a certain niche to them. Like Thelma and Louise is kind of a feminist road movie. You could say Stranger Than Paradise is like a, a slacker kind of road movie and. This is, you know, you could say is a queer road movie. The the way it's revisionist is that like Mike never integrates into society, and he never and he never finds his his goal at yeah. at all. Yeah, I think that also was like what was interesting, and I think early on he had established that he was used to roads, right? So I I was like thinking like, is there a comfort for him to be on the road and always searching? Or is it just something he does out of necessity because he doesn't have, hasn't found it yet, I guess. I mean, I think that he's looking for his mother, but I guess in a way you could also see it as like a way of discovering sexuality and finding who you are yeah. and like kind of defining your identity. But I think it was so interesting because it was an abrupt transition. It made sense. I was like, whoa, okay, but I'm with it. But then it felt short in comparison to what else we saw. Like I felt the road bit was very short, even though it felt significant. And I felt like we didn't really dive into what it means for him. 
Uh, but I don't, maybe I was just expecting more. I don't know. I guess you could say like the road movie and the Western kind of have a certain influence on this film. Cause even that campfire scene that comes up, it has a, you know, in Westerns, you know, the Cowboys would sit, would sit down, even in like the movie in my own private Idaho, you hear like the train whistle in the background and you hear like a coyote. Yeah. <laughs> I was thinking, I felt like I even heard like drumming and chanting yeah kind of like tribal kind of drumming and chanting i was like that's weird that's so strange (laughs) yeah but it's like adding this queer uh confession into this into the typically very masculine western trope setting yeah they're fiddling with the the bike that shitty bike that you mentioned mike says like oh yeah i've been on this road before like he was in the opening scene he even does the thing where he makes it into the face from his perspective and then he tries to get a sky's like hey scott you notice this and scott's like what are you talking about and mike just laughs like kind of shows mike has a little bit of self-awareness that like yeah obviously scott's not gonna see it like this you know um i think it also kind of symbolizes that that like I don't want to say that, I I guess I'll just use the word sensibility that Mike has in like his connection to the road and like his dreaming and his, his passing out and maybe also his queerness and how that informs how he sees the world differently than Scott, who, like I said earlier, I feel like it's more representing of someone who can just dip in, out, in and out of this world at like free will. Yeah, and even that little abrupt cut to them at night when mike's trying to fix the bike and he's like hey scott where are you going and scott just walks off and leaves him to fix it himself it's almost a i don't know if it's intentional but it does read as foreshadowing for what scott eventually does do to mike when he does just leave him you know yeah i think it probably i think it probably is foreshadowing honestly (laughs) yeah we get to the campfire scene which um referenced earlier yeah, I guess uh, if you want to say what you wanted to say, go ahead. Yeah, so just what you were saying with that River Phoenix kind of influenced the fact that this scene exists. I think it's so interesting because I felt like it really felt very, it felt like a moment of catharsis. Even though Mike got rejected, Scott held him and like he didn't tell him that he loved him in that way. But I think it was already established that he cared about him as a friend. Obviously, how deep that caring goes is then later revealed. But just like I think that moment of Mike being held, I think was so important. And it was like a moment of intimacy that we don't see Mike get. He's always in these situations where the intimacy is paid for and it's fabricated because it's not real intimacy. And I think that's why that scene was super significant for Mike. And I think it was good that it was there because I think at that point we wanted that for Mike. We wanted him to be held and like find some sort of peace, at least for a little. And I think that's what that scene did for me, at least. I was like, okay, at least he's being held now for a little while. <laughs> it works very well. And even just to talk about how he delivers his own lines, it's the way he slowly draws it out. And even when he's uh, he's like, well, you're my best friend, uh, Mike. And Mike's like, yeah, yeah, I know we're, we're friends. Yeah, that's good that we're friends. Like. It has a real believability of somebody sort of confessing their feelings to somebody who doesn't reciprocate it. Like, I don't even think it's like a queer in it's complicated in this because Scott doesn't identify as gay, but like even like say just a more heterosexual uh, scenario like that, it, it actually has a universal kind of feel to that. 
just yeah but i think it also is kind of going against the like men can show affection for other men kind of thing which i think a lot of more straight narratives like kind of perpetuate more the like distance between male figures whereas i think this also really shows that he accepts like he can't reciprocate but he just like you're my best friend i don't love you like that but like i love you and then i think again it's kind of sad knowing what happens later but i think it's yeah like i said it's like a moment of catharsis i really i felt i was like it felt like a hug to me after being like like so like oh man this kid is not getting a break and then like he keeps passing out and it's all this up and down and nothing seems permanent and then just like someone's there and holds him and i i don't know i think it's i think it's great big fan <laughs> yeah it's a it's a really good scene it's uh deservedly so the most fam- famous scene in the movie everyone talks about it's also like interesting when the mike says you know uh, i think i'm a well-adjusted person maybe if i had a normal dad and everything and scott's like well depends on what you mean by normal because even scott's not entirely normal because he is coming from such a place where he has maids and like his dad's the mayor right so it's not but, like it almost shows that like scott is almost kind of oblivious to like he doesn't see himself as totally normal, but compared to someone like Mike's situation, it looks pretty bougie, you know? Yeah, I think it's more like, I guess, I think that's a lot of, that's a big conversation always in terms of like queerness or sexuality and what's normal. But it's, I think the better word is normative. Because I think to Mike, Scott very much represents like the normative ideal of what you should be like, right? Like you should have money, whatever prospect, I don't know. Not to say that that's what Mike is dreaming of, because I don't think we necessarily see him speak of what he wants apart from clearly like finding his family and finding a place. But I think it kind of speaks to that. Yeah, it's interesting when you say how like a lot of mainstream movies divide male bonding like that. I find in certain films when like two friends of the same gender are just really close and then they reveal, oh, one of them is gay for the other one, as if like, you know, friends can just can deeply care for each other without it being romantic or sexual. Like I find like that writing to be kind of hacky and even like critics who like to read in these homoerotic things to where I don't think it's there like it's fine it's just like inserting things that don't really have much of a i think a good tie to reality but i think like this scene actually does work well in serving the film because because mike is just looking for love like you said in any forms and to have it be rejected by scott in the scene who is his friend and all these other things i think it does work well that he would have these other feelings for him like in the context of this movie that sort of trope plays well i think it's also set up because it seems like again with the scene i think it's just as they're about to leave when they say we've been friends for four years it kind of shows that scott has been what i'm guessing a rare constant in his life yeah someone that's been there for multiple years um so i think that really ties into yes i guess with that scene that scene kind of gets over but then yeah we're uh mike passes out after running away from the cop and then scott carries him up to his brother's place and his brother who lives in a trailer outside the house which is a an odd choice but yeah that wasn't supposed to be the house he grew up in right like that was just a random house yeah i think so because he later talks about like trying to remember what his mother's house looked like and it's like if he grew up there he was just there you know so yeah yeah, i think it's a different house okay (laughs) yeah we made his brother 
Dick, I think that's his name. At first he, yeah, he flips out at him and he collapses into his narcolepsy. And what's interesting is that uh, I think his brother paints these portraits of families and when people don't pick it up, he just hangs them on his his wall. It's just like it gives them company, you know. Again, it's that kind of postmodern idea of being comforted by these artificial images of a happy, normal family, right? But he can't actually have it. Yeah, I think that was a super super pointed little note about what he does and I think it was so crazy that he was just yelling at his brother and then like his narcolepsy kicked in and he just said to Scott oh this happens all the time it's like cool yeah let's just yell at this kid and induce his illness you know whatever that's fine it's almost in this scene I think Scott's starting to realize like he really doesn't belong to the world of Mike because he kind of looks at himself in the mirror briefly kind of realizes like yeah this whole Mike's life and how he's come to this, it's really not where I am and it's not where I should be headed or want to be headed at all. Yeah. And then, of course, the important conversation between Mike and his brother about his father. (laughs) Essentially, Mike reveals that he knows that his brother is not really his brother, but his father. Right? Like that. It's it's hard too because I'm finding it hard to gauge the age difference between them. Yeah, it's he tells him that really trite story at first about, you know, that that badass guy who his mom killed while Rio Bravo was playing on the Yeah. On the and like even Scott's like how corny <laughs> to the side of it. And then I like how it's just totally shut down, but Mike himself just says like don't fuck me in the head, man, you know, it totally shuts it down. I think that's so interesting because Mike also, from what we said, like he has this fantasies in his head of who his mom is and we don't know if it's a real memory or a fantasy. And I think that kind of comes back with his brother slash dad <laughs> with the story of this like fantasy of who Mike's dad is. But then for that, Mike really rejects the fantasy. And I'm guessing it's because it's what he actually knows and remembers. So there's like a very harsh rejection. Like, no, don't bullshit me. Like, It has this kind of light touch to the way it reveals that, you know, his, he's the product of an incestuous relationship, which is like a really unsettling thing for a lot of people. But he's he's known it for a long time. So it doesn't really play up the drama so much but it works in that yeah this is just another aspect of his existence you know it doesn't need a huge dramatic payoff right yeah i think it also further explains why he's so focused on finding his mother because if his dad is his brother he doesn't really have a dad in that sense yeah that's what a weird sentence i can't believe i just said that sentence it makes sense yeah i think it's yeah this this is the moment when uh he gives him that the bloody postcard. I think did he just like cut himself and blood dripped over? It's a weird. Oh, that I don't know. It's a weird touch. Uh, but yeah, that's when Mike decides we're gonna go find my mom. And would you say uh, him looking? People like just have said that they feel the him trying to look for his mom is kind of like a flimsy plot device. Like it's kind of almost a, just a, a MacGuffin. Like almost. Would you agree with that? No, because I think it symbolizes his mom is just a stand-in for the fact that he doesn't know what he belongs to, where he belongs to. He's like trying to find his sense of self, his sense of identity, and 
his sense of belonging. And I think his mom just symbolizes that. But I don't think it's like a bad plot device. I think it works because through that, all of the rest unfolds. I don't know. I think it works. I think people say it's flimsy just because you don't feel there's like a lot of dramatic tension to it. But I feel like that kind of, that's not the point because you kind of feel it is futile from the beginning that he's not going to be able to do it, but he just goes along with it anyway. <laughs> I guess it's, I feel like there is tension leading up to it. I guess that's maybe just because it fizzles out because there's no big reveal. But I think, I don't know, I think his life is already so not dramatic, but kind of all over the place that I think it doesn't need added drama. He is already like, I feel like it's, you can kind of fill in the drama, you know, because it also skips periods of time, not just because he passes out, but just to speed along the progression of the plot. Yeah, I think that's a good way of uh, sort of maybe defending like what some people might have as a criticism. Yeah, so I guess like the first step on that, they stop at a hotel where they meet Hans again, which may seem a little bit of a coincidence that they run to this guy of all people again. In the middle of Idaho somewhere. (laughs) Yeah, he's like, what are you doing in Idaho? It's like, what the hell are you, someone like you doing? What are you doing in Idaho? (laughs) Yeah, this this well-off guy. The German traveler in Idaho, the classic trope. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you see that every day, right? Then, yeah, they go up to his room to please him. And he has that thing. He's like, I was in a band before. And then he starts lip syncing to the with the lamp under him. Do you know what that's referencing? No, but I was like, this is the classic, like, look at this weirdo. Like, Have you seen uh, Blue Velvet by David Lynch? <gasps> oh, my God. No. The scene when, the scene when uh, Dean Stockwell lip syncs. To in dreams it really oh, I, th- I think it's a direct nod to that even just with the lamp under him is a very lynchian touch yeah. yeah that was a fun little tidbit i thought it was funny too because scott cut him off he's like enough of this shit yeah because well, he, he saw mike was just getting mike was just dozing off he just had yeah. no mike was just not giving the shit at all and then they just cut to the that very clinical performative uh, uh sex scene where uh Got to put that in quotation marks because it's just poses of them in sexual positions. I think it shows that like they're having sex, but internally it's this very static, empty kind of thing. They're just doing it for their own convenience, right? Yeah, definitely. I think I think what I also found funny about that whole interaction between them and Hans at this hotel, when he was in the bathtub taking a bath, which is like a luxury that I'm guessing Mike isn't a boarded very many times and then he's like what 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 room service do you want and like he has to repeat it like three times and I was like like yeah, he's really taking advantage of this but it was just such an odd way of like Hans was like trying to get through to Mike and he didn't and Mike was just like I'm here to take advantage of this luxury but I don't give a shit about you Mike kind of has a childlike feel in that scene, the way he's just playing with the, the bubbles, right? And even the way how he's like, yeah, 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 how he's like mocking Hans's accent. And then they, they sell Hans out, basically, as like, I guess, petty revenge, maybe. They give him the stolen bike, and then he gets stopped on the road. Yeah. And, yeah, and then they, they're like, what about Hans? And then they just laugh at each other. <laughs> So they just screwed him over, which is uh, which is kind of funny. Yeah, I thought that was a nice touch. <laughs> Get to uh, Italy when they, from the hotel staff that Mike's mother took off to Italy. Yeah, so he wakes up and Scott had paid, uh, you know, and Mike's just totally like a, 
a stranger in a strange land there. He has no idea where, where he is. And then Scott pulls up in a cab and he says, like, yo, he paid those people to look after him. And then they go off to the countryside where it turns out his mother has has eluded him yet again. And Scott meets Camille, that's her name. The, uh, the Carmela, farm. right? Carmela? Camille or Carmela. It's uh, the farm girl there. Yeah. It has a drastic cut when Mike's like, mom, mom. But you don't see his initial reaction. You just see Scott kind of comforting him while he, he's crying and everything. And I think it's effective use of the whole movie, how um, in his mind, you know, he's saying his memories fading. And you see like the, the perspective like moves back away and it's clear that mike is just he knows he can't find her anymore and he needs to embrace himself in the present yeah which is then totally dashed by scott uh falling in love with with uh camille yeah yeah i think it's so it's so shattering to him because like he just realized like he's never gonna find his mom and then like scott who he had kind of found a home with like as his best friend but also as his love interest and someone that like kept him company on this journey all of a sudden it's like oh so i'm gonna head out with this girl i just met peace <laughs> yeah it's he's like really cold to mike too once he starts seeing her you know and um, mike's narcolepsy can't save him because he's like sleeping and he has to hear them going at it while he's uh trying to yeah. sleep it's the little irony there yeah but... i was thinking that too i was like mm, that one time when it would be good to just pass out I think it's interesting, too, because I think in a way, maybe Scott needs someone to want him. And maybe that's why he tags along with Mike, because Mike wants him most. But then he meets this girl and then he kind of drops him to be with her. Because even like in the first part of the movie in Portland, we always see Mike engage with this girl. Um, And I think he always just kind of needs someone to want him, maybe. I don't know. Maybe I'm overinterpreting it but that's just what I was thinking of now. No, that, that makes sense. And actually, when you mentioned uh, that that female hustler, I, I assume she's a hustler who's, you know, with Mike in the booth earlier in the movie, how she's uh, blowing smoke at him and he, he doesn't, you know, he makes that hissing sound. Yeah. And she's like, come on, it's a smoking section. It's weird because he's at uh, the dinner with uh, Scott and Camille and he does that exact thing to them he blows smoke right at them in a kind of disrespectful manner so that's that might be a part of mike that he just kind of picks up on these things in an intuitive way yeah i I just thought it was like so rough scott was just like so and he i think he just woke up or something but like it just seems super abrupt like it's like here's some money and i and then he just heads out and i think it's so reminiscent of like Mike only gets love or like gets to engage in intimacy if there's a payment in the end. So like obviously Scott's idea of leaving him the money is so that he can get back to the US or whatever. But I just thought it was such a jarring gesture from Scott who we thought Mike was like, he was like his friend. And then all of a sudden he's like, here's money. I'm gonna head out. Yeah. Uh, Scott has sex with, uh, with her. It's done in that same uh, style as when they were pleasing Hans. Is it kind of implying that Scott's move to uh, Camille is like maybe like empty? Like he's just trying to find somebody to kind of help, you know, for him to when he returns to to normal society kind of thing. 
I wonder, but I also thought maybe it's just that through Mike's eyes, because I don't think he actually sees them. So maybe this is Mike's way of picturing it as like someone who's not interested in or not necessarily interested in engaging in sex with women. And that to him, that feels also like a performance to Mike, just like his hustling does. And like, for example, the intimacy with the, well, I don't know about intimacy, but like the scene with Hans. Yeah, that's an interesting way of looking. I didn't think of that, but it kind of makes sense because even if the movie's not as specifically in Mike's mind, the form of the movie very much mimics the way he kind of experiences things. So that is an interesting way that he sees it in that manner. Yeah. No, that's that's an interesting point. Because I feel like the commitment, that sounds weird, but like the fact that Carmela isn't just like, she's just like, he's fling in Italy and then whatever, but that she, because she keeps reappearing, right? Like she's there in the end. That's her. Yeah, when Scott's uh, returned back and he's inherited yeah. his fortune. So I think that to me symbolizes that to him, it's like, okay, well, this is a move I'm going to take. And it's easy for him to drop Mike over it. And that's why I was like, huh, I guess maybe, I don't know, maybe that's why we see it through Mike's eyes. And like, I think it's interesting too, that we, there's again, a sex scene happening where like sex is happening and we hear the sounds and we again see Mike's face. But this time it's very different to when we first kind of saw that in one of the opening scenes. Thoughts. <laughs> that's that's what this is all about. Uh, yeah. Then I guess after that, yeah, after Scott just cuts Mike off, pretty much. Uh, so, Mike, so brutal, so brutal. I know it's kind of sad. And then uh, Mike, uh, yeah, Mike makes his way back to to Portland and then uh, resumes I thought, his. I thought that was also such an interesting scene that he like wakes up, like he just looks looks at them go away, and then he wakes up, and someone's like. We've landed in Portland, and he's like, "Oh, okay." <laughs> yeah, that is an interesting transition. It's like, did he just fall asleep on the plane? I, I assume so. <laughs> you know? Yeah. But uh, yeah, he returns to Portland, and I think he sees that uh, the sort of campy uh, John he saw earlier again. And I thought I like the touch when he's on the TV and he's watching uh, The Simpsons. Yeah, uh, it's the very first uh, Treehouse of Horror episode, and it's kind of funny because at this time, right, Simpsons was causing raves amongst certain critics because it was like, oh, tearing down the nuclear family and just providing bad role models. And even in the how all the family members are getting taken up by uh, yeah. Ken and Kodos, it's sort of, and Mike's laughing at it. It's like Mike kind of intuitively understands the the show's satirical bent. I yeah, I also, I really love that bit. I was like, this is so great. I think we also see him kind of, what you said with the bubbles in the bath, he's like, childlike and i think it's something similar with the tv because i'm guessing what we know about mike and his family situation he probably didn't have a very kind of carefree childhood i mean he's still very young we see him kind of hugging that john again which uh, and they're not doing it in a performative way it's actually he's trying to get some actual intimacy with this with this guy but then it just cuts to him laughing to himself outside the on the street because sure, that john kind of clearly is well off and maybe he could give mike a home but he doesn't mike just returns to to the street you know kind of laughing at his own predicament yeah and then isn't that when we see the scene of scott driving by in the limo yeah uh i like the way that's shot because it's like you from inside the limo you see mike just passed out 
on the street. It zooms in and he fades out and you see Scott in his limo. It's like Mike is totally in the rearview mirror. He's not in his world anymore. He's yeah, like, and it's like, I think it again exemplifies what I was saying earlier that like for Scott, this life was a choice. He like got to leave it and he's fine and whatever. And it's like, it never happened. Yeah. Whereas Mike is in deeper maybe than before. <laughs> Yeah, very much so, because Mike's just been even more emotionally destroyed by everything. Then, uh, yeah, I think it's pretty clear after this that Scott's at that restaurant, and then Bob and his gang try to come in, and it recreates the the scene from uh, the Henry plays where, uh, you know, Falstaff comes to, to Hal, you know, after Hal has taken up his proper role, proper in quotation marks, and, you know, he uh, rejects him and he says, you were once my teacher and I love you even more than my father, but don't come near me. And, you know, later it breaks Bob's heart and he literally dies of that, which is how Falstaff dies in, in the play. Yeah. Uh, which uh, that it, it does have a little bit of a, I don't know what the word is because like you are setting this in such a modern world, right? Where drama has progressed a lot since Shakespeare and you do that thing exactly as Shakespeare did it in contrast to what has been done with the rest of the movie has been going it does feel a little it's I very mean, theatrical I think it, it's very melodramatic and yeah. like I mean I mean in a way you expect Shakespeare would be but like given all the stuff with Mike and everything it just kind of it takes a hard left turn that I think is very jarring and yeah the way it does it so it's not the strongest scene I would say but I think what I love following that is the juxtapositions of the two funerals. Yeah. And I thought that was like, just the laying over of like the priest or pastor or whatever, speaking at the one funeral that's like, everyone's all properly dressed and mourning the dead quietly. Like, you know, Western society tells you you should. And then juxtaposed with Bob's funeral where they're like singing and wailing and they're just being really loud and like, play fighting but then also hugging and it's I thought that was like such a nice juxtaposition again maybe a comment of like the life you expect and like that it doesn't have to be like that and that there's like a counterculture or a subculture or whatever I don't know I just I really appreciated that that was very well done yeah I like this scene too even the way they're they're juxtaposed in the shot you know when uh on uh, Scott's dad's funeral, it's so mannered and very composed. And then at Bob's funeral, it, the camera has all these crazy angles and it's everyone's just going wild. You have the one guy who's flea from the Red Hot Chili Peppers just screaming at the top of his <laughs> his lungs. I, I forgot. I can't believe I forgot that Flea was in this movie. <laughs> was in I, this didn't, movie. I didn't even notice. <laughs> He's in a lot of... Uh, 90s or indie stuff he's in the big lebowski and uh, oh my god he is he's in fear and loathing in las vegas too (laughs) gotta love the cameos yeah i think it's kind of when scott looks over at the funeral you can tell there's a part of him that probably does miss that that lifestyle but i think in the end scott's ultimately just a sellout i think that's kind of what he becomes yeah i think it kind of symbolizes like there's so much freer like the street kids, whatever, Bob's funeral party, I guess. And I think it kind of shows like that Scott has left this fun life. And it's like what he said, right? There will be a big change. But he just like left it all behind. And uh, yeah, I think it's interesting too, because I find the presence of Carmela so interesting because it reminds us so constantly of what Scott has lost. Like at that one house, Scott has 
no, it's not Scott. Sorry, Mike has lost. Yeah. Mike lost his mom. He lost his like female figure that he was searching for. Whereas Scott emerged from this trip to Italy with whatever his future wife or girlfriend or whatever. And I think and I ugh, such a spicy juxtaposition. You sum that up really well. I think uh, we find uh, at the very end, Mike is back on the road <laughs> again. Uh, you know, and he says probably his best line where he says, you know, I'm a connoisseur of roads. I've been tasting roads all my life. This road will never end. Pass he snarkolepsy kicks in. He passes out, and then we see what people do to him when he's uh, unconscious. Some people come by and rob him, and then this one person, uh, who some people think it might be his brother, but it's not clear. They, but this person picks him up, drives off, and then uh, we get the little title card that says "Have a nice day," which yeah. I, which Mike said that's what the little face he sees on the road tells him. <laughs> And the movie just tells that to us. <laughs> it's, a, it's a nice little wink there. But I think it's it just sums up, uh, yeah, what Mike's whole thing is when he's he can't truly experience all he wants to of the world. And, you know, the world takes everything from him. And he's ultimately just carried around by things that are out of his control. Sort of just sums up how his, you know, his whole situation. Yeah, that's exactly what I was, like, thinking when I saw that last bit. I was like, yep. Yeah. The world is just taking advantage of him and like someone in his position and uh, there's no one to look out for him. And I think that was so, so clear. It's like, we don't know who picked him up. I was also thinking, I was like, who is this? Is this someone we might know? But I was like, there's no way to tell. Uh, So. Yeah, I think, yeah, we covered the whole movie. I think just to wrap up our thoughts, uh, you say uh, uh, us talking about it together. Do you think you've uh, gained a good understanding of it? Would you say? Yeah, I think thinking through definitely made intensely thinking through a movie always changes how you experience it in hindsight, I think. And even just watching with the intention to like talk about it, I think is always a bit different than just watching for fun. Yeah. But I think I think it really puts some pieces together, like now that we've thought about it a bit more, puts some pieces together that didn't maybe fall into place earlier. And I think that I now feel like the film is such a nice little package, you know, because we like talked about it so much and now we wrapped it up and it's still packaged now that is all analyzed. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I think it's a, it's a very idiosyncratic, great little movie. It's very poetic. It's very moving. Yeah. Very few movies that are really like it. And if you look at art as something that translates pieces of reality into its own language, I think my own private Idaho really translates a lot of universal and specific stuff into its form. So yeah, I still stand by, yeah, this is Gus Van Sant's best movie, and it's a quite a good accomplishment on, on that front. I would agree. Yeah, we can get into Mysterious Skin, 2004, uh, written and directed by Greg Araki, and based on a book that I have not read that doesn't even have a proper Wikipedia page, so I don't, I don't know how close Araki sticks to the book, so we'll just uh, judge on its own merits, of course. Uh, I don't have any, unlike Van Sant, I don't have any experience with Greg Araki outside of this film. Do you at all? I only know, because I looked obviously at his filmography, and the only other film that I've heard of is White Bird and a Blizzard, which I haven't watched, but it was a film that came out 2014. And that's the only film of him that I had even heard of. So yeah, this was also new territory for me in that respect 
Yeah, uh, the other things I've heard of, like uh, he did the Doom Generation, which is a another '90s queer road movie. Maybe we could have done that instead of Mysterious Skin compared to My Own Private Idaho. But you know what? Nobody's perfect. I only found out until after I suggested (laughs) this. But yeah, I know he has a reputation as being a little more of a shocker kind of filmmaker, like a bit of a provocateur in how he displays sexuality and even violence. But I know he's respected by some critics whose opinions I find interesting. I remember one, in regards to this movie, Mysterious Skin, one uh, critic, uh, Mark Kermode, a uh, British critic, said that he thinks this is a sign of maturity for him as a filmmaker. He said, like, whereas the uh, his, he felt his earlier films were more just bad boy provocateur type pieces. This one it feels more a mature dramatic piece. Which I would say this movie I don't think I don't like it as much as my own Private Idaho. Just to compare it, but I think it's a I think it's a strong movie and what it deals with. I would say on the whole, I think it definitely has a big impact and like watching it and um. I think that I've I read that Araki thought that the book made really like like accurate observations of the effect of like abuse for kids. And I think that's why he was really drawn to it and to make it. So I don't know how much we can base on that, but I'm guessing that that might mean that he took a lot from the book. But I also haven't read it. So that's all I have to add to that. In terms of like uh, realistic observations, I think there are some good pieces of this movie that do feel very realistic. And there are other parts of it that feel a little over the top, maybe in certain parts. But I think we'll we'll get to that when we talk about it. But yeah, just a content warning. This film is about child abuse, child sexual yeah. abuse, the very fun, fun-loving topic. Uh, There's nothing other to do than to content warn before we get into it. Just uh, broad, yeah, I guess we already said broad thoughts. It's a, we think it's a movie that does what it's doing pretty well. I think it fumbles here or there maybe in parts, but on the whole, I would say it's a quality, a quality film. But yeah, the opening uh, where we see the little kid version of Neil, who is played by uh, uh, who, when he grows up, is played by Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Uh, he's being showered by Fruit Loops, which seems kind of the imagery seems innocent of a kid dousing in the cereal. Though the Dream Pop song, I don't know the song, but it has a noisy sh- shoegaze feel to it in the background, kind of highlights a. A melancholy to it especially when we find out what those fruit loops signify for him and his life so it's a it's a decent opening sequence i think it definitely draws you in because you're like huh and then later you're like oh <laughs> yeah. i think it very much has this desired effect that i'm guessing was the intended purpose of the kind of fun innocent seeming i guess scene that later reveals to be heavily connected to the trauma that this character has had to endure. Yeah, I think this movie will probably be a little easier to talk about than My Own Private Idaho. It's a little more linear. It's not as abstract. It's a little more straightforward, even if it goes back and forth in time and deals with some subjectivity. Yeah, then after that, even though we open on the image of Neil, we actually are more properly introduced to Brian first. And I don't recognize the adult actor from anything. I've probably seen him in some stuff, but he's not an actor I recognize. I recognize some actors, but not him. Uh, when he's a kid and how when he was at his Little League baseball game, he started, he got a nosebleed, but then he blacked out and he found himself hiding in the cellar, still with a bleeding nose of his own home. And he had no memory of uh, 
what he had been through. And I think that it, it makes a good decision to start on him before it starts on Neil because Neil actually remembers what happens. So by starting on Brian, it adds a sense of mystery more or more intrigue as to what is going on. Yeah, definitely. I think it's also an interesting way to introduce us to the family dynamic that Brian grows up in versus what we then see Neil grow up with. Yeah, like Brian's dad is kind of, is he an alcoholic? I don't think so. I think he's just an absentee slash shitty father. He's not a good father. He doesn't really care about his kids. He probably has a certain backwards view of raising them, even as he's not even trying that hard. I also recognize we mentioned Grace Zabriskie from My Own Private Idaho. That's another Twin Peaks actor playing dad who plays uh, Hank Jennings, Norma's scoundrel husband on Twin Peaks because Araki is a fan of David Lynch she's a I bet that's why he's uh he put this guy in there I'm uh, guessing mother is very kind of I don't know if I don't know if you say she's stereotypical but she has just a more normal suburban mom kind of feel yeah like her. she's there looking after her kids but she does work we are established right away and that's why she couldn't pick Brian up from the Little League game. Um, but I think it's already like made clear right away that there's tension between the parents and like, I guess, Brian and his dad because of him just being in a cellar and his sister finds him. And then his what, like mom asks the dad, like, why didn't you, how did he end up in the cellar? And the dad's like, oh, I don't know. I think this movie actually does capture sort of some of those small town living dynamics pretty well, actually, I would say, even if it's not, that's not mainly what it's about. But yeah. I, I think talking about that really quickly, I thought it was so interesting because it was very much supposed to be set in a small town and we see like the juxtaposition to New York City, the big city where Wendy and uh, Neil escape to. But what I thought it was interesting, and I don't know if I'm just not remembering those shots, but I feel like there were never any setup shots. We never get any shots of the town. We never get really any setup shots of New York City. I feel like it's very in like or ambiguous, I guess. Like, it could be anywhere kind of thing. But I don't know if I'm just not remembering the specific scenes. But afterwards, I was just wondering, I was like, did we ever fully establish where it is other than the name of the town? Yeah, I don't think there was ever any establishing shots, which is interesting. Kind of Maybe it was Iraqi just wanting to avoid some, like, cliches. Because establishing shots, especially in New York, are really <laughs> kind of cliche, hackney stuff that every filmmaker uses. So I admire that he didn't go down that easy route but that's an interesting point does give it a more maybe a more universal feeling if even if we do have the name of the town and we know new york city is where they go to uh, back to brian then we know he says he starts like wetting the bed and he keeps blacking out not in the way mike blacks out but you know <laughs> it's two characters <laughs> who keep blacking out but i think those are actually pretty consistent with children who do suffer these abuse and it's clear he's haunted by these nightmares even before he believes these ufo fantasies that he comes to uh, obsess over yeah i think that nose fleet is an interesting touch too because it's such a i mean of course blacking out is also a very physical reaction to trauma traumatic memories but i think it's such an interesting way because it's so easily woven into the narrative then he that that he then obsesses over with the ufos and the alien abduction and i think it paints a really interesting story because at first you're like wait what <laughs> are we really going down this alien route right now 
the first instance will you know in his little dreams we have we see like the little white hands which kind of reminds me of like on south park the uh the visitors the really crude white aliens <laughs> kind of reminds me of that and even the idea of probing that's like the very first south park episode yeah i think it's when he he actually sees a ufo outside his house and but then he goes up onto the roof with his mom and his sister and they all kind of look at it and it's weird the way it's shot it has this spielbergian yeah. close encounters kind of like sense of childhood all and wonder yeah. to it to Definitely. and i and I, it seems like something that would be the way it's shot and everything is something out of a spielberg type movie and but it's interesting like is brian i have a feeling is brian just hallucinating that his family is seeing Saw this it? yeah you know? that's what i was wondering too because i was like his mom never seems pressed that he's obsessed with aliens she's like oh whatever just you know a teenager but then i was like but didn't she also see the ufo like was that real i have a, it has to be brian's hallucinations of it but it does feel so weird that he would hallucinate something so specific, like that his mom and his sister would be there, especially yeah. especially considering that they never reference it to him. And like you said, his mom kind of thinks he's just being silly and wasting his time with this stuff. Yeah, like it would be so I was like, oh, are they going to set up the whole family is like conspiracy theorists and like aliens and UFOs? And then she's just like chilling. And I'm like, hmm. Well, I think there are some people who may watch this and think, oh, the UFO stuff and this child story of child abuse, oh, that's so silly or something. But the thing is, I've actually read up, it's actually fairly common. People who claim they were abducted by aliens and probed, it's actually their their mind's way of suppressing the memories that they were abused as children. Like, it's an actual real-world yeah. psychological phenomenon. It, it's not – even if I didn't know that, say that it was – that I would believe it in the movie because the mind, trust me, uh, the mind does a lot of oh, things. Oh, yeah. No, yeah, I thought, I thought that too. I was like, it makes so much sense. And also, like, the way, obviously, later on, um, that Brian kind of has the first flashes of the memories being more realistic rather than alien-focused. Yeah. I think it also makes so much sense. Yeah. yeah, it's, I think, super interesting way of exploring it and also... Because, like, you wouldn't, if you don't know about this, you wouldn't immediately assume that that's what it's supposed to represent. But the more the movie goes on, you're like, okay, this makes so much sense. I will say, do you think a flaw in this, because, like, Brian, when Brian grows up, well, when he's a teenager, he's, you know, very awkward, nebbishy, sort of a very introverted guy. And, uh, you know, he's trying to find the truth, right, about these UFO things. But then ultimately, not to jump to the very end, but he comes to realize the truth of what actually happened to him. But I feel like because we know what goes on with Neil, like it's very clear what happened to Neil. And it sets up that Neil and Brian are linked in this way fairly early on when they spot each other at that Halloween party. But yeah. uh, so do you think it loses a bit of maybe tension on the Brian story since we kind of like, okay, we there's a sense of going through the motions. We kind of know he's going to find out what I, happened to him because we know what happened to him. It's pretty obvious. I don't think so. Even though I was like, I don't think it's aliens. Like the shock value still worked for me, even though I kind of caught on, I guess. I think it still works because you still, I'm someone who's like, I, I very much feel what the characters are feeling. I'm very empathetic in that way. 
And um, so I think going through the emotions that he's going through still works because you still have the like slow sense of kind of uncovering the truth, I guess. I think it does work in the sense it is predictable that, you know, he's gonna find the truth in some way. But I think even when something's predictable, the way it's handled can still be done well. And I think like his obsessions with the ufo and that relationship he gets to with that uh female uh ufo abductee i think it all handles that stuff pretty well i that was so interesting because by that time we met i think her name was like avalyn the lady who also thought she was abducted i think i mean it's kind of obvious that her kind of trauma comes from the dad i'm guessing which we met super briefly but when we met her i was like i don't trust any adults in this film none of the adults give me a sense of comfort like neil's mom she's there but she also frequently dumps her son somewhere else so she can go on dates have sex whatever then brian doesn't even really know what's going on his mom's like a good mom but his dad left him and then obviously coach is a super despicable character and then this lady and I was like are there any adult figures that we could just feel safe with like what is going on and I got such bad vibes from her for like the first time we met her like when Brian met her I was already like exit now please this is like the starting of a horror film you drive out to the farm in the middle of nowhere and there's this lady wearing a nightgown who thinks she's been abducted by aliens come on dude let's go yeah yeah i had that in my notes too that like yeah the the parents aren't abusive they aren't doing their job very well at all like both neil's mom and brian's dad they're totally absent parents the fact that they would leave them alone with a figure like coach which neil's mom literally willingly does she lets him spend all this time with with him while she's off dealing with other guys having dates i know she has to she has to work because it's a pretty. It's clear they don't have a very. They're very lower middle class. So there's an ex, there's a reason why she's absent. But still, even when she's has time to be with her son, she sort of drop kicks him off. Yeah, and I think it was so interesting to kind of jumping ahead, like with this lady ending up making a move on Brian, when he clearly, I think it's super clear that that's not what he's looking for. No. I think that kind of, again, shows like she's gone through similar things and that's the way she thinks she has to deal with things. I was I was like kind of like screaming at the screen when that happened. I was like, no, 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 because <laughs> I was like, no, we don't need this. And I was like, oh, my God, he's going to break down now after having experienced that. But like that wasn't really what tipped him over. So I was like, oh, OK, but. I think it was such an intense moment. I was like, I just want someone who we can trust, who we can feel safe with. Give me an adult who can take in these kids and make sure they're fine. Like, they clearly need some guidance. Please, someone. Yeah, it almost, that's interesting how, like, I mentioned how this, you know, when they see the UFO, how it has that Spielberg quality. Because, like, you know, Spielberg, Stephen King, a lot of those pop cultural writers, they often have, like, adults who are so untrustworthy in their works. It's almost a really odd deeper link to those works that maybe Greg Araki isn't even aware of. It's kind of, <laughs> it's kind of, it's kind of interesting. Yeah. Then we're introduced to Neil. I don't like his introduction where he's uh, talking about how he came for the first time. At, yeah. I at eight, like, oof, odd choice. <laughs> at eight years old, watching his mom fillet some 
dumb dude she was with. One, it's biologically not believable that he's like eight years old. <laughs> he's able to have that reaction. And yeah, also, I mean, but that was set after Coach had already started grooming him, right? Like, because he was like, I can't wait to tell Coach. So yeah. that was like, because I was, I was confused about that at first. Like, did this happen before or after? But even if, like, yeah, he had gone through these things, you know, it still yeah. does, it's still not believable. Yeah, it was know. just very odd. But I think it really positions Neil in a way that he's just, I don't even know how to describe it, but like what we see later that he's like... Detached. Yes, yeah. He, he's almost like a borderline sociopath in some sense. I mean, sense. yeah, what he does with the kid with the fireworks, I was like, oh my god, Neil, what the hell? That, But even, uh, it makes sense though, because we kind of see, even before he gets abused, uh, when he's like cheering at like, yeah, the that dumb bitch in that slasher movie got her head chopped off and how he's so giddy at that. But it's kind of clear that Neil is probably on the path to being this kind of detached person already even before he gets abused. It's just the abuse drives him down this very specific sexual path that he goes down. We're introduced to Coach when his mother drops him off at the Little League game, and he's already kind of attracted to him because he looks like uh, those sort of stereotypically bare kind of men that you know is in his mom's catalogs that he's been... Yeah, cowboy type. That stash. I can't get over the stash. When we see Coach turn around and that mustache, I'm like, Lord, help me. <laughs> yeah, he's not portrayed in a malicious way. Like he, he seems just kind of really goofy when you first see him, mostly because of that the mustache. But even when like we know what he's up to, he doesn't feel like somebody who's just like the epitome of like evil. Like he's a horrible, horrible person for what he does to Brian and Neil. It's clearly that's against their will. But I think that there probably is a part of him that probably thinks he really cares about them, even as he's doing these awful things that are really driving them down these horrible paths they go on yeah i think i wondered when i was watching it because he i very much felt that too that like it was obviously like you watch it and you're like wow you're a monster (laughs) this is so wrong and so unspeakable really like it's something you don't want to happen you don't want to think of but i think i he was portrayed in like a not i don't know grotesque way or like this kind of I don't want to say positive because I don't think it's a positive portrayal, but I think it's because of how Neil views it. Because even as an 18 year old, 19 year old, whatever, he says that he doesn't feel like anyone will ever love him the way Coach loved him, right? Yeah. And this very much like, I think despite the trauma, he still has this kind of connection to him. And I wonder if that's what is informing the flashbacks, which is what we're seeing. And if that kind of is framing how Coach was portrayed, because it is all told through his flashbacks and a lot with narrative, like voiceover. For is that Coach just feels very believable. Like he doesn't feel like a a caricature, even though we only see him as how the you know Neil and later Brian sees him. Like you said, like Neil grows up thinking that like that was a real act of love almost. But it makes sense given his situation because his mom is with all these these guys she's just very flippant with her own sexuality and here's someone who claims to 
have a love for him and he already has a tainted kind of view of sex because of his mother's life so and there's nobody to really contextualize that what happened to him also was really wrong and inappropriate so it makes sense he would grow up believing this all these years you know also because i think it was so interesting coach said to neil don't let anyone ever tell you that this is wrong and it's so interesting because i think it can be read as like don't let anyone tell you that an adult with a kid is wrong which is clearly wrong but also the idea of two men together which is then obviously pertinent to neil's life later on (laughs) he kind of obviously we see him similarly to mike hustling those streets there was a lot of like me going oof with those scenes and that's why i was so glad when i was reading about the film that they didn't actually film the kids and the adults together in those abusive scenes and like that they try to shelter the kids from the intensity of the content and i think that make, makes me feel so much better knowing that cuz it's very I don't know if you feel that way, but I think it's very uncomfortable to watch. And you're just like, yeah, I'm not, I'm not someone, you know, my whole thesis is on the grotesque in film, right? So I'm very, uh, kind of numb to a lot of stuff, but yeah, it it is kind of, especially one scene later is quite cringy to watch, but yeah, I think it it does. It handles it. It's creepy definitely because you know what's happening, but it handles it in a very, tasteful kind of manner like you don't see it blacks out and then you see it come up and i think neil's reaction even though he goes down this path later his first reaction when he's like really got his head down and he's not saying anything it's believable because he just experienced something that really is alien to him right even as he comes to think of it (laughs) yeah (laughs) exactly but i guess like yeah it then cuts to like two years later i think when Neil and Brian are still very young and they're at, it's on Halloween. One thing I find strange about this, because they say Brian blacks out again during this period. And we later learned that coach, you know, did abuse him when he really thought the aliens visited him again. It's sort of strange. Like what was coach doing in that area? Brian ran into him. Like, did he take him back to his house or? I don't know. I feel like in my mind, the way I put it together is that, Halloween is like, you know, the kids are all dressed up, the adults are all dressed up, and it's like kids wandering around on the streets. I feel like someone like Coach would definitely know that there's situations to take advantage of. And I think, I would guess he didn't like stalk Brian to find him, but I think he, it was just a coincidence that he saw him wander off and he followed him. Yeah, the thing though that's weird is that Neil talks about it like, you know, it was throughout the summer that he had this relation with Coach, but it, then this scene is like two years later, and I'm like, okay, did Coach just move away? But then we see this incident with Brian again. It's like, did Coach just come back to the town? Yeah, that was also weird for me, but... I know there's a purpose to this other vision that Brian has, but it, it just feels weird in placing continuity and placement of his abuser. In the end, when Neil explains everything to Brian, does, was Neil present on that Halloween night? Not, he wasn't with Brian. No, so okay. none of. So then maybe, maybe that time it wasn't Coach, but maybe that's just how Brian puts it together in his head. That might be. I don't know. It, 
That might be one, but I think that might be reaching a little bit. I don't I think know. The, I'm, I'm just I, trying to grasp at straws. <laughs> yeah, I think that is kind of what it is. It's fine, but like, yeah, it's just a little bit of an error in terms of the continuity of the movie that is a little bit strange. Uh, but, I'm guessing it's also supposed to set up like, I mean, whatever it was, it happened again to Brian and it just kind of reconfirmed his theorizing about alien abduction because there was such a long time period between it i guess yeah we also i think neil meets wendy on this night i think that's or i think they already met but because they're trick-or-treating together and wearing matching costumes okay for some reason i thought like the way it's introduced she introduces her in the voiceover it almost seems like it's the first time they're meeting but i think what he's trying to do in the voiceover is to say that what happens with the kid is what binds them together like that kind of experience is what solidifies their bond or whatever yeah well he says that like if he wasn't queer they would probably end up together yeah yeah, and making uh on getting unwanted pregnancies and (laughs) such that's that's his words yeah then there's that scene that you mentioned earlier where he yeah puts the firecrackers uh in the kid's mouth in who's the kid clearly has some kind of disability yeah i think think it was supposed to be something like that i was like this poor kid like he seemed so disoriented he didn't know what's going on and i was like man neil is cruel this is like very much what you were saying like neil is very apathetic and not very uh emotional yeah he's a He's a he's an abuser himself to this kid and clearly shows no emotion towards what he's yeah. done to him. Yeah, he deforms the kid's mouth just with it and then he go and then he fillets this kid who is just totally just his mouth has been ripped open and now he's just completely confused and Neil does it I think to stop stop him from like tattling yeah. on him, which is you know a very kid way of looking at these scenarios. But I'm guessing it's also just because, like, that's what Neil learned from Coach. That, you know, oh, yeah. if something happens, don't tattle. Here is this. Oh, yeah. He very much learned that from Coach. I'm just saying the idea of tattling, you know, that language they use. That's something oh, yeah. that, like, little kids very much, which makes it more disturbing that they feel like little kids while at the same time doing these things. Yeah, he says it's at that moment that he knew him and Wendy would be friends forever. But Wendy's like totally shocked by it. But I think it's like Wendy probably had an instinct of knowing that Neil probably needs somebody as a center I think, in his life. Yeah, I think he even also says like Wendy never looked at me the same again. Or like she always looked at me with the, I don't know if it was fear or something. But like there was always something when she looked at him that she just, because she had seen I guess this dark side of him that, I mean, it makes sense. If you see the worst parts of someone and you just like go through it together, it's like creates a very specific kind of bond. Yeah. I think she, she has an understanding, especially when she gets older, that she knows there's a void in Neil that probably does need to be filled. And maybe she can't fill it, but she can at least keep him a link to some form of human empathy <laughs> in a way, even if it like Neil may not see it like that. Yeah. After that, it pretty much jumps ahead to their teenage years, I think, where we see Neil, Wendy. Well, Neil's grown up to be uh, played by Joseph Gordon-Levitt and with Wendy grown up to be Michelle Trachtenberg, from, who's known for Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Uh, what do you think of uh, – I think you mentioned earlier, talked about My Own Private Idaho, the uh, 
performance of Joseph Gordon-Levitt. I think he's I think he's quite good and he sells the he really sells that sort of emptiness, that flatness very well, but also he sells the confusion and the shallow kind of joy he takes in doing this stuff a little bit. Yeah, I think emptiness is the right word because I think the performance is very good where this character could be played very like I don't know one dimensional I guess because it's very he's a very specific kind of person I feel like I don't know I feel like Joseph Gordon-Levitt at the time hadn't done anything like this before right and um, he even said that that that's what drew him to the movie and he felt really happy that Iraqi gave him the chance because it's something he'd never done before he'd never played before and I think he did really well because it was this kind of emptiness but also and like having gone through so much but also like he was still a kid and like so many times I was like man you're just a kid like I don't know I thought it was a really good performance and uh yeah and we see Neil uh he makes himself a hustler in this little small town that uh he's in he always goes to the park and he has sex with these you know these sort of bear types who do all resemble the coach in some way that's pretty much his teenage years. I'll say like one thing that's weird about all the Johns in this movie is like this is a small town. How many are there in this small town that are cruising for this? I mean, little... I feel like it was kind of explained with the guy that sells candy, who he wasn't from this town. He was just uh, there on business and he came by. And I thought it was so funny. Like what a weird way of like a man has candy in his car and he <laughs> the young boy hustler gets into his car and obviously it's whatever because he's at that point he's already 15 and he's putting himself out there on purpose but I was like that's such a weird image and then he warns him like be careful like there's like police up in this area and stuff like that and but then they like hook up and it's it just I just thought it was so funny weird to just have like this old man warning him but also like he has candy in his car and lures in the young boy. And I'm like, okay. One scene I uh, I don't like, it's not like terrible, but it's when Neil and Wendy are in that abandoned drive-in theater. And then they kind of talk a little, they have this faux poetic, not monologue, but they're talking about their lives or whatever. And then, all, you know, they're like, hey, it's the voice of God in my microphone. And then it starts snowing. That felt a little, it felt a little precious in a way, you know, like it was a Rocky kind of showing his, his hand doesn't alter a little too much because I didn't buy that these two characters at this moment in their lives would be speaking to each other in a manner like that. Like it seemed like something they would do when they're a little bit older in the movie, not at this age. So that seems a little clunky. It doesn't like ruin anything, but yeah, it felt a little out of place at that point in time. I agree. Does anything happen with Brian when during this period of their early teenage years before we jump ahead? I don't think so. I guess we just get glimpses of him, of what he becomes, and we know he's into the UFO stuff, but I don't think anything specifically interesting happens. Yeah, I don't think we see, like, any anything, which is weird, because you could have really started building up that he keeps, like, dream journals already and stuff like that. Like, I actually felt that was a bit weird to me, because we did that jump cut from the kids to 15, 16-year-old kind of thing before we jumped to them being, like, 18, 19. Yeah, And it felt like Brian felt kind of short. I was like, oh, so this is just, we're just throwing in like, oh, by the way, Neil became a hustler. Like, cool. 
watching it this time, I didn't realize how fast it moves and jumping into the time. Like you said, it's very abrupt how, uh, especially the time jump between their teenage years where Brian isn't uh, really given much development in that area. Also, uh, the actor who plays Brian, do you think he's good? I liked him. I yeah. thought he fit the role well. I think he very much had the kind of, he felt younger than Neil, which makes so much sense in the way that like he developed how he processed the trauma, how his like situation is. I think it makes sense that he's more like UFOs, kind of obsessed, keeps himself a bit nerdy looking, whereas Neil is like out there basically thinking he can do life on his own. I think that worked really well. And I thought, I don't know, I just thought it was a very sweet, sweet character. Like, Neil Neil always pretended to be so tough, and I feel like Brian, it was like, you gotta give this kid a hug, man. Like, Yeah, I think he does well. It's not like a showy performance, but that's, no. to, that's to its advantage. He plays a very subdued, and he's believably someone who's very introverted and awkward and in a way that he doesn't feel like a, like a cliche caricature of that kind of teenage person. Like, he, I knew... I knew people like that, even if they hadn't been abused or believed these eccentric things, they would just kind of behave in a very awkward kind of, at times even sniveling way that he, he speaks with at times. Yeah. I think, I think he's good. It's again, it's not like a performance that draws attention to itself, but those kind of performances are usually better. I I think it also, it's, I think it couldn't have been done differently with this character because if he would have leaned too much into making it more over the top, I think it would have seemed like a caricature of this kind of person. And I think with this story, you have to be very, it's a very delicate balance between portraying it and caricaturing it. And with such such a sensitive subject matter, I think I would feel really weird if they had made them this like over the top kind of introvert who keeps to himself and a super weird like he's super fine. He's he's already in his first year of college. Like he has a good relationship with his mom and his sister. Like it's all fine. There's like nothing too over the top that it's yeah. I don't know. I think it's a good choice. I like the point you said how it could become caricature. I think like especially with the UFO stuff and even with Evelyn, like I think an easy tendency would be to like make these characters as like parodies of these kinds of eccentric people. Cause it can be so easy to mock these people for their insane beliefs and stuff but it actually i think even in like avalon's role which could easily lean more into parody i think the actress i forget her name but she does a she makes her feel believable like and human i think both both the actors do yeah yeah i agree yeah we jump to their late teenage years where uh wendy neil and their friend eric who's more of a has more of a, a feminine make made up look to him more stylish and who's also clearly gay and you know they're driving around and they piss off some redneck trucker i believe by making up which feel which maybe feels a little over the top how he just pulls out the shotgun right there but it, it's plain it's it i don't know to, if it is over the top for kansas but that's maybe because i've never lived there and i only know the stereotypes but i mean it's mostly playing it for humor i would say so it can get away with that a little more. I like the dynamic with between the three of them, how Eric love, but he, he longs for Neil. He views him as kind of this, he says he's like a beautiful God kind of, which is a little precious line, but um, 
it makes sense that like some in this small town, somebody like Neil to a kid like Eric probably would seem like so otherworldly because it's such a boring town. So someone who has this edge would probably seem much more interesting than they actually than he actually is, probably. Yeah, I think it's also just kind of like they're also kind of whatever edgy i really don't know any better words to describe this kind of thing but so i think it also makes sense that they flock together but then also like as the others or queers like they come together because i'm guessing doubting there's like a very big queer community in this small town in the middle of kansas you know so it makes sense also that like maybe that neil seems it's like an obvious crush for eric because like i'm guessing he doesn't know very many gay kids so the fact that here's like a good looking dude who there's potential of him liking him back it's like perfect crush material right yeah it's also that trope of like where this guy kind of likes another person but the other person is more world weary than him and uh neil has a lot more rougher edges than eric who's a little young and naive for neil's tastes yeah uh, I mean, I think it's interesting that it's established that as a teenager, Neil very much is still has that attraction to the older man, big mustache, you know, cowboy, ruggedy, whatever, bear vibes. <laughs> yeah, I also notice how uh, Neil uh, purposely taunts Eric sometimes in like a teasing fashion. There's almost like a bit of maybe self-hatred on Neil's part that like, Eric and Wendy, perhaps, well, maybe not Wendy, but it's implied Wendy did have this crush on him at one point, but uh, Eric kind of idolizes him in a way, and Neil probably knows he's not somebody that should be idolized really at all. (laughs) Yeah, I think it's also interesting that there's, again, a character who's so desired, which is very similar to God in My Own Private Private Idaho. I think it's such an interesting dynamic again that there's this like cool guy and he everyone wants him and I think it's a really interesting moment because like we said that bond between Wendy and Neil was kind of solidified through that experience where the kid got hurt with the fireworks and I'm guessing in the whatever 10 years since uh, Wendy has probably seen Neil go through a lot more shit and like heard a lot more of the stories and the shit he gets up to and because she says to Eric don't get sucked into this there's just a when, void yeah when i'm gone like where other people have a heart neil has just darkness i was like Ooh, damn yeah listening to it's, a lot of emo songs that's coming out now <laughs> yeah it kind of shows like childhood friendships too how you kind of stick by these people even though you're aware of their real dark flaws right that's that's handled well there um yeah, I think it's uh, with uh, Brian. He he goes pretty quickly to meeting Evelyn, I believe, in this section. Where he, like you say, drives out to that farmhouse, which does have a horror film vibe, especially in the rural setting. Rural settings are popular for settings for horror films. Yeah, I like when they're talk when she shows um, uh, Brian her scars and stuff. She's talking about the stuff she's read up, and it's very clearly it's like pop psychology that she's talking about. It's not stuff that really has much bearing but it's believable that someone who's gone through some trauma and has these eccentric beliefs would latch on to stuff that would explain how awful their life is right and not look further so her rationale is believable yeah i mean the type of like isolation of the countryside or even the small town 
and the isolation that the characters feel because of the trauma that they're dealing with. And like Neil clearly feels very disconnected from everyone, like kind of isolated. And I think the same is for Brian because he feels so alien <laughs> because of what he feels has happened to him with the alien abduction. And it just kind of positions them in that isolated other position, which again speaks to like the queerness of the film or that it's trying to represent, you know, like it's the other. We have the other being whatever alien invasion and obsession with that. And then also the other being like queerness in uh, Neil. But then also it deals with this whole like trauma. Um, I think it's uh, very interesting. I don't know how I started talking about this, but this is where I am now. So (laughs) (laughs) that's fine. Yeah. Evelyn has a line that's interesting. She says like they're spying on us, right? Which obviously has a literal meaning for UFOs, but it also is, you could say it's like these memories they have, they're always over Neil and Brian's back. Even if Brian can't remember it, these are things that are constantly watching them as they go into their adulthood and they still have these impact on them. So I don't know if that's intentional or me reading into the line, a line that's very utilitarian and it's, usage but that's how it, no that's i how think it makes sense too because like like i said i'm guessing that avalon's kind of trauma and fiction around this alien abduction has to do with her dad who is there and who was kind of watching them when they first started talking and maybe it's also referring to they're watching us it's because the dad is always looking out over what avalon is doing like what are you up to you know cut back to uh neil uh in the town where uh we know he's been getting blowjobs underneath the uh, the space ball stand. Yeah, it has the same expression on his face. And then he, he gets tired of it. And eventually he gives the – well, he's with Eric. He says, I just want to get out of this buttfuck town. It, it seems so abrupt he would be. But as a very angsty teenager like he is, I believe he would just erupt like that. It make, makes sense, I would say. Yeah, and it felt very <laughs> realistic. Yeah, Eric, uh, he finds – Neil passes out, and then Eric finds the some the photo coach took of him before their encounter, and then he has the tape, one tape they made of like these things they were doing. And Eric Eric never talks to Neil about it, but I think it's more to show that again, show that Neil uh, keeps these as like mementos, like the way you keep certain presents from a past lover type thing, which is. Very sick, given the context of this movie. And I think it speaks back well to what we were saying earlier, that Neil still feels this attachment to Coach, even though it was a traumatic experience. Like, in his mind, even when he explains it to Brian, he makes it very clear, I was Coach's favorite. You know, like, he chose me. And, like, I think even as an adult, I guess, like, 18, 19-year-old, Neil still feels like a sense of pride that he was chosen, you know? I don't know about pride, but he just, it definitely seems like he's delivering it in a way of like, I'm proud. I was the chosen one. I was his favorite, even though what happened to him because of that is obviously horrible. Yeah, he feels like honored in a sense, like that somebody cared about him so much in his mind, right? Like yeah. that that's like the only love that he's really been shown i mean his mother obviously does care about him but she's just a flake and he's probably actually inherited some of his own flaky behaviors from his mother too i bet the way he goes about with these other guys but uh i like how i do like how um it shows how 
people's paths can diverge from a, from the same trauma, right? How Neil becomes this hedonistic extrovert while Brian just retreats into him to himself and into his own fantasy world. So I like showing the divergence and they're both believable how it's handled. Yeah. What I think is really sweet, and I think that happens once Neil leaves for New York, is how Eric and Brian became become friends. And I thought it was really sweet because it felt very realistic in terms of it's like a very unlike pairing. But they end up being at the same college and they study together and both of them don't really have any other friends because Neil left, who was Eric's person, and Brian didn't have really anyone to begin with. And I thought that was so sweet. And I think I got really invested into that friendship. I was like, wow. So like, I really felt like it was a realistic way of depicting a friendship between two people who are quite different. And I, I thought it was very sweet. And I was like, I don't care if Neil comes back. I, I'm invested enough in this. You like a movie with just these two. Yeah, like that's fine. I like you brought that up. I like their little, the friendship they form up too. Like you said, it's it's an unlikely pair, but I like how at first, you know, when he's, when Eric writes that little flirty letter to, to Neil, how he says like, yeah, I met this guy, Brian. It's, cl- it's very clear he, he finds him interesting because he's an odd, he's an odd person, but as time goes on, you see just how they're casually hanging out with each other that like he just totally accepts these oddities in Brian and Brian probably just likes having a, a guy he can just hang out, with, hang out with who isn't, you know, someone who's just totally eccentric like him. He actually has a sort of somewhat of a normal friendship, even though they're in this town, they're very different people. Yeah, I thought it was super, super sweet. Um I also like uh, when they're watching that gore movie. I don't know what movie it is, but it's a really gory zombie movie. And uh, Brian's like, is this the only kind of movies you watch? Uh, it's interesting because, like, uh, I bet you know Rocky Horror Picture Show. Yes. The uh, the creator of that, Richard O'Brien, you know, he said as a queer person, he found solace in these kind of schlocky B-movies because they were also deemed as unworthy by mainstream society and stuff. So he found uh, comfort in that. So maybe it's a little bit of a wink to that, kind of how some queer people actually do find uh, identification with stuff that is considered disreputable <laughs> schlock. Yeah, I think horror is super... There's a lot of links to queerness otherness and that kind of thing well actually like even before that when brian meets avalon one more time and he they look at the dead cow i think it is it's a dead cow and you know when brian sticks his hand in he like he doesn't fully black out but he like it sends a shock wave a psychic shock wave through him that knocks him off his feet and i think it actually this is a link because you know when we find out what the coach asked brian to do to him and now he's doing something similar putting his fist in something that's what really triggers that it's kind of disturbing but it does it does work how it how they link like that yeah i mean it would make sense that the physical sensation would trigger the memory because that's what i was saying like it's the first time we see him flash back to the memory and it's a real hand on his face rather than an alien hand which i thought was really an interesting touch where it showed like okay now something has clicked and i thought that was disturbing but interesting i think one of the first johns we see neil uh meet is like a pretty buff guy and i i don't like the dialogue when uh he says fuck me up the ass with your hot teenage cock i uh i can't believe i just repeated that but 
That is <laughs> that has I don't know that has a real porno fantasy <laughs> vibe to how that's written, <laughs> and I really it's, and I kind of don't care for it. <laughs> I think it's definitely like vernacular that we're used to from porn. It was super funny because I was watching it and my partner just took his earphone off from gaming and then this line came on and he was like okay <laughs> i was like it's not like that this is a very deep movie <laughs> but yeah i thought it was super interesting seeing the juxtaposition of the different encounters with men that neil had because obviously yes he goes to various ones in new york that i think they are much odder than what he's used to from the small town. The next one he needs is that guy, uh, the AIDS, the guy who's suffering from the AIDS sores all around his body and who loves the the painter uh, Vermeer. He has the Vermeer paint, the famous Vermeer painting in his room. And, uh, you know, he gets off by just Neil touching him, just rubbing his back and everything. It's almost like he's, it's a good scene because like it's he's someone who just gets off on the fact that he can be intimate with somebody. The, the fact that somebody is just giving him this intention and this sensuality, even if it's not totally sexual, it's something that really enlivens this guy. And it's like a real emotion he's feeling. First, and it kind of sends uh, – it, it sort of disturbs Neil because he's never really felt somebody who had like a genuine intimacy with him before. <laughs> and that's when he starts to reconsider – what coach did to him and such. Yeah, I thought that was also really poignant in terms of raising awareness. Because, I mean, they talk about it before, like, be safe and stuff. And I think coming to New York makes Neil confront the reality of the AIDS crisis much more. Mm -hmm. Because in New York, everyone is, like, safety. Like, the other guy who asked him to fuck him um, is like, what are you doing? Put on a condom. And, like... I think it was already shown that before Neil was kind of reckless with that because he got crabs, right? Like, yeah, in his small town and stuff like that, which I also thought was a hilarious scene. Like, I'm just so itchy. Can you look? Uh, dude, you got crabs. I'm like, oh, God. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, and then then this kind of like encounter with the guy who has AIDS. And I think the fact that he says to him, it will be the safest encounter you'll ever have. But like you said, it's just kind of about the intimacy. It shows how shunned people were for just this illness, right? Yeah. And how you're being ostracized. And um, I think that's a really important element of new queer cinema films because they were, they kind of sprung out of that era, right? It was like the 90s, the second kind of decade of the crisis, I guess. Um, it was like a big element of it um, to deal with it. And I thought that was such a good way to address it in the film without making it something crazy like Neil gets AIDS or something, you know, like, but he still has an encounter with it without either demonizing it or making it this big, bad thing that he has to deal with, but just something that exists. I thought that was really nice, I guess. Yeah, it, even just in the terms of social kind of consciousness, it just works to progress Neil's arc along. Even like after this, it's when Wendy comes home and he says like, oh, I uh, have a job for you. And she, at first she's like, oh, you're not interested. But then he's like, no, I, like I actually want to want to hear about this job and stuff like he's actually letting his barriers kind of break down and be more actually open to 
people you know it's it's done in a subtle way that's not so uh you know hitting the nail on the head it's not like he does something so noble but. yeah yeah i think it's also sweet because it shows like my mom sent me a ticket to come home for the holidays and it's like he's like i didn't think i would but i'm actually looking forward to going back and i think that's also kind of him being more vulnerable and i don't know if that's the right word but yeah i thought that was also fit in really well with the scene of him like no tell me about this job i think after the next john he sees is that really violent one who ends up very much raping him in his uh bathroom and i'll say that i think we can both agree that scene is very uncomfortable <laughs> to watch it's it's very it's handled in a very grisly manner it's not like over it doesn't show everything of course but it's still the way it's done how he's beating on him as he's raping him in the bathtub and stuff it's quite a quite repulsive to watch i will say that and i like though i get the purpose it serves because he really feels like he has been taken advantage of and you know he wakes up covered in blood kind of like the way brian woke up you know blacking out right so he kind of has realization that his whole life he has been taken advantage of it just took this one really violent incident to make him get out of his head i think it was also interesting because the character who takes advantage of him i felt like was kind of a representation of what seemed to me like really deeply violent kind of internalized homophobia where it seemed like this guy really hated that that's what he wanted to do and that's what he was attracted to and things like that. It's definitely a very jarring scene. And I think the fact that we see it through the reactions, again, I think, I mean, a lot of films do this, where you see it through the reactions rather than through the act. It It's uh, really intense because you're so confronted with the emotions that are happening. Yeah, I think after this scene, yeah, Neil's arc is kind of completed, I guess. It's most now it's mostly for Brian and yeah, Neil returns home on Christmas Eve, I believe, and they uh him and Brian uh who Brian has been like I say has been searching for Neil because he knows they were on the same little league team and he sees him in his dreams and uh yeah, so Neil takes him to coach's old house, which isn't the house anymore, but it's um it's still the same in a lot of ways. And Brian, I think there's a look on Brian's face when he sees the blue light coming from the house. I think it's there he realizes the the real truth of what happened because, like, the blue yeah. light, like in his dream, right? And they come inside, and, yeah, the rest of the movie is just them kind of Neil explaining to Brian that what really happened to him, which involved Coach making them kiss each other and then having them do gross things to him which he got off on and and yeah neil uh well brian you know he he starts nose bleeding again and he cries in neil's arms uh as christmas carolers sing outside the window to underscore that the irony of the scene this spiritual christmas song as neil's in his narration he's sort of like he wishes they could just rise up like angels and just fly away from all their troubles but 
but they can't, right? Yeah, I thought it was such a bittersweet ending because I also thought it was so necessary for Brian. Like you said, Neil's arc was wrapped and he, I think it was like a step to character growth. And I can only imagine that after this, Neil started to do better, like just mentally, like that's what I would imagine. Um, And I think for Brian, what I thought was so important that, or what I thought was really sweet, Neil wasn't just going to dump everything on him. Brian said to him, tell me everything. I need to know what happened. And I thought that was so important. And it almost, that's why I would say it's bittersweet because I feel like obviously the truth is so horrible when it comes out. And I wouldn't call it a happy ending because I don't think anyone's particularly happy. But it's also not not a happy ending right like I don't know how to say it except for like it was so bittersweet like you feel like things have been resolved and you feel like maybe now that everything's out in the open they can start moving forward and healing and kind of going through it so I I thought that was really interesting I very much agree I think like yeah Brian is very yeah, obviously he's hurt and he's has to feel the pain of learning what happened to him but I think it is ultimately I think it is for the best that he has learned of this. Like you said, he wanted to, he told Neil to keep telling him what happened. He's even as he was getting into the grizzly territory. But I, I think it's like, like these have been long dormant in Brian's mind and now he's finally able to come to terms with it. And that's why he emotionally breaks down. But I think like, it's the kind of thing where that's a necessary breakdown, him realizing the truth. And I think it's kind of clear he probably will be, he he can stop living. He can live in reality now. He doesn't have to live in this fantasy world that he's kind of somewhat like wasted his life looking at. So even though the truth is painful for him, I think ultimately it is for the for the betterment of of him as a person. And I think Neil also for the first time really shows empathy and humanity in that yeah. scene because he holds Brian and he like is really gentle with him, but also honest. And I think that, again, speaks to his kind of own realization that he's had after his traumatic experience with that guy. I would you say, I don't know if this ending feels a little, I don't know, maybe TV movie, the way it kind of wraps up and all this, and just this explanation type thing. And then, you know, by talking, everything is healed up. So I can see maybe it being a little pat to some people but i also think it's it's just more believable with the trajectory these two have gone on that it would end just like this you know that they reconcile the horribleness of their past but it is also a sign that perhaps they can have a better touch on their themselves and their own reality now i think it's more acceptance because i think what you said neil kind of realized through being taken advantage of um, by this guy that he has been taken advantage of his whole life and I think it kind of shatters the idea of that like love even though when he talks to Brian he still says like oh I was his favorite but still like it kind of shatters that and then for Brian obviously the truth being uncovered literally is like a whole new truth to him because he believed that it was something else for so long and I think to me it very much symbolizes that they're both I think they're at the bottom, right? Like, they're not up high. That's why I'm saying, like, it's not a happy ending, but it still kind of feels like it's wrapped up. They clearly have so much more to deal with. Like, I, I think that's a good way of putting it. Yeah, so 
yeah, overall, it's a more straightforward movie than My Own Private Idaho, but in terms of the issues it tackles, it handles it with enough realism and sensitivity and some good observations about how how it is you how these things affect these people but also the way in which these people can accept and come to better grips with their pasts and how they can move forward yeah exactly it wraps up this pod uh yeah the thanks for uh thanks a lot uh yelena for joining me this was this was fun thank you for inviting me so many thoughts but you know yeah so this is the interzone asylum podcast Signing off.